welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast is that's from a region where there isn't really any good games about it. Unlike our current favorite guest mogul tonight, Mr. Craig Taylor, who has lots of games from his region. Craig, how you doing tonight? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good indeed. Thank you for having me on, Mark. Indeed. I was a pleasure to have you back, my friend. Yeah. I, I'm happy that you brought this up because this is a big complaint I have living in the Twin Cities. Like, you'd think that we'd have more train games, right? I mean, like, everywhere I live, like, literally where I live is an old train depot. And none of it is present. And it's very frustrating. But every 18xx game features stupid Chicago or features the UK. And I'm done with it. Or Canada. Why is there so many train games about Canada? I'm done with them. <laughs> I think it's lack of interesting geography. Like, if there's one thing I could say, it's that uh, Minnesota has a lot of lakes. And, like, how would you even make a lake train game where it's just nothing but curved pieces and you just got to zigzag around stuff? That'd be weird. Yeah, I don't know. But great to have you on, Craig. We're really excited. We got an action-packed episode, as always. I disappeared for a short while, and you guys have pumped out another 30 episodes. It's something else. You guys are incredibly prolific. (laughs) Well, and actually, what's fun about this week is I actually have played games in person, which is probably the rarest thing that's happened in the last, I don't know, how long? When do you think I last played games, a good game week in person, Mark? February? Oh, it's it's been a really long time. I know we attempted a few tabletop simulator things in the spring, which were pretty short lived. But yeah, the, the time that I looked at your list of stuff you've played and it was more than just a game or two has been four or five months. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just excited, man. For those that don't remember and haven't heard Craig on his many of his other August appearances on the Gaming Moguls podcast, Craig is the host of the Train Rush podcast. And Craig kind of big goings on over there in train rush land isn't there sort of yeah so we took a long hiatus um that we'll go into in a future podcast but long story short coming out of the tail i don't say tail end of the pandemic because that puts a timeline on it that's um, completely unrealistic but certainly out of the tail end of spring an opportunity to kind of reinvigorate the podcast came available and um, we've been trying over the last few months to capture material and put it back out there again and i'll be honest it's it's really energized my gaming throughout this quarantine type period giving me a reason to push through that membrane of playing on tabletop simulator stroke whatever the unpreferred method of playing games is to make some content for people yeah your recent episode on ride the rails is really the uh, encyclopedic end story on the entire game like It sort of made anything we had to say about the game kind of on the order of it's cool (laughs) in comparison. Well, I've got to say, Joe's got to take a lot of the credit there. Like Joe had a desire for want of a better term or a a vision for making something a bit deeper on a Cube Rails game. And I'm happy to explore games deeply like that. I did have some reservations when we were releasing it and when we were editing it and stuff. Like there was three hours of tape there and we chopped it down to an hour and a half. And my fear was, are we making something that no one wants to listen to, right? Like, is this just a thing for us? And then came away from it thinking, well, it's a hobby, so so what? It is just a thing just for us <laughs> that no one listens to. But as it stands, people seemingly have really enjoyed it. So we're both really made up. Oh, that's great. And I've long suspected there was much more to that game than just met the eye on a first playthrough or two and just felt super validated as I was listening to you guys deep dive on it. It's tough, right? Because that is a game that I've found that people bounce off. And that's not to say they're wrong. Like, you know, you can't you can't force liking something. But I know a lot of people have bounced off that saying there's no game here at all. And 
having a podcast plan for it forced me certainly to push through the membrane of something I might not otherwise bother with. And it, yeah, really good experience just digging into it. And you, yeah, you're right. It's, there's a lot more game there than meets the eye. I'm not convinced I've found all of it yet. Yeah, I'm certainly one of the people that have, I don't know if it bounced off of, but it, it feels laborious to want to play it, if that makes sense. No, sure. It's a weird one because it appears initially like there's not a ton of game there. And this kind of, it's almost like this free stage thing. Like the first first game you play of it, you go, oh, that's pretty neat. The sort of the ritual and the motions of assigning payouts and stuff. Then you play a second game and you go, oh, hold up. I think I've solved this already and it's game two. And then you get, if you carry on pushing through, you realize there's solutions to your solutions, to your propositions, to your solutions. And so much it depends. There's like, there's no clean answer to anything. You realize there's a game in there, but you, it's kind of like a Tom Russell game in that sense. Like you have to have the group that's willing to push through it and try different things. If you're not got the group, it's really hard. I also fully agree with your conclusion that it's really, really player count dependent. Like I've played it at four players, thought it was great. And Jake, I think you've only played it at three, right? Yeah, and it wasn't a perfect play, but yeah, I've only played it at three players twice. Yeah, I would say that is like playing an 18xx game at two players, Jake. Aren't I surprisingly like that, by the way? Weird side note. Sure, but you, you get that it's not representative of the genre, right? Like, Oh, agreed. Yeah, and I'm not trying to say that. I've, I haven't made up my opinion on it, but the, where I am currently is I don't want to play it, you know? Oh, I understand that. I understand that fully. The one thing I would say is try it at five, right? Like, Because at five, that is... Uh, in my opinion, it's best count, right? And if you don't like it, if you can't see the virtues that it's potentially got to offer at five, it might not just be, just might yeah, not be absolutely. And I, I owe it another play, but we'll see whenever my COVID bubble gets big enough to get five people in for a game day. Don't know when that'll be. <laughs> yeah, that's the big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I forget, Jake, you're anti- um, online player your anti-tabletop yeah. simulator i say anti i say anti like it's a political <laughs> point of view or something i mean it doesn't resonate oh, with it, you it, as well it's I a really political mean. point of view for yeah you. it is I've, I've, I've become an extremist in regards to this i i think it's mainly due to the fluctuation in weather in my where i live we live in minnesota it's cold here for arguably half the year and you can't really do a lot of outside stuff and then my job recently switched. I, I'm, I'm in outside sales, so I do a lot of customer meetings where I used to. And now it's only moved to emails and phone calls. So I'm sitting in front of the computer way more than I signed up for when I first started this job. Um, I used to drive a lot and have a lot of meetings and stuff, and I really enjoy that. So I'm just spending a little too much computer time right now, especially coupling that with nicer weather. So usually towards the evening, I'm doing something outside. And so that has very much exacerbated my, I don't know, disdain's the wrong word for TTS, but I think this fall they back in No, I get that. I get that. I get that. I, I get that, man. Balancing all things. Like I, I make a point of um, personally of scheduling it. So if I'm doing too many nights a week on the computer, no, it's not happening, right? Like so, it's a couple of nights a week, and that's it. Well, and then on top of it, too, our night that we do for games has been Wednesday, which is perfect when it was in person. Because it's like sweet. This breaks up the week, um, and I can really do it. But being online for like in front of the computer for like twelve hours. I'm probably longer than that 14 hours on a on a Wednesday is just too much for me personally, at least at this point. I'm sorry for making you relive but that pain, Jake. <gasps> well, I feel bad. I feel like I've just abandoned Mark. <laughs> I've abandoned my boy. That's okay. I got new friends. There it is. You got, you got your cool online <laughs> friends. But I, I do play a lot of async still, and I still play a lot of async 18xx.games. So. 
Nice. But enough of async. Why don't we talk about games that we played in person this week? Because I played a lot. I went up to my cabin this past weekend and my entire extended family there, who is my COVID bubble, was there. And usually we don't play a lot of games, but we've torn into a bunch of them. And I am completely enamored with a game that I haven't been enamored with a game like this in a very, very long time. I'm speaking of Santa Monica, designed by Josh Wood and published by AEG. Um, Before we talk about this game, I have to give a big thank you to our friend Dominic. He recommended this game a long, long, long time ago, months and months and months ago. And he's kind of always been championing it. And I convinced my uncle, who really likes Tableau Builders, that this would be a perfect game for him. He ended up buying it. And I am so thankful that we played this game because it's awesome. I was definitely doing the math on that being an Uncle Kirk game. Oh, without a doubt. It's everything he wants. And I think Dominic kind of pitched it as this is Wingspan, but slightly better. And I can kind of agree that that's pretty much what it is. But first, let's start off with what you're doing. You are building a beach in Santa Monica. And the way that you do this is there's a tableau of two separate cards that you're building. Um, you can either have them be boardwalk cards, which are on the, the, the bottom side of your row of cards, or there's beach sides that go up there. And then you're putting together different sequences of cards for certain different point things. Certain of them have to be chains together. There's also population that you can get on each different card that you, dra- um, that you draft when it's your turn. And you move these folks around to different spots to get the most game, um, points. This game is kind of similar to a lot of Euro games where it's not that different. Like this is not doing anything creative that you haven't seen in any other game. But personally, I think the packaging and how it all works together just works really, really well for like a family weight plus game. We played this game with my cousin who's 15 and she's not a super big gamer, but she picked it up after probably three fourths of a play and was absolutely competitive the second time that we played it this weekend. So we played it three times, huge fan. And I also another weird thing about this. This is like my perfect game, the way it looks. I don't know what it is, but at the end of it, when I look down after laying all my 14 cards and I see my little tableau of parts of Beach and Santa Monica I've made, I just feel this really great sense of accomplishment. And I love it. I don't know why. The bonus of that whole thing is you can take up an entire Calyx cube with the box for it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's probably <laughs> the most egregious game to components that I've seen in quite some time. Um, it is a standard Euro size game. But it is maybe a deck of cards and some cardboard and like four bags of meeples. It's really, really, really bad. It's egregious. I'm hoping that the game comes with an expansion um, and that'll maybe justify the size of the box. But oh, it's bad. It's super bad. This is probably number one on people's reboxing list. It's in the same size box as Wildcatters, and there's a lot of stuff in the Wildcatters box. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's not a lot of stuff in this. I mean, this could have been a small box game release. I don't know why they didn't. Um, the gameplay is does feel big, but that's such a stupid correlation in normie standard board game world that the box size has to be a relation to the game size play. It's just, it's dumb. But Well, and I think, anyway. you know, could you imagine it in a box kind of like the same idea as like walking in Murano? Well, that'd be too small. I think it could be in like a Pax Pamir okay. or like, like um, the fort Pax Trans. Yeah, fort, fort would literally be perfect for it. And maybe there's some manufacturing difficulties involving rulebook size. It does that stupid thing that other games do where it's the exact size of the rulebook for the box. So it's just this massive <laughs> sheet of paper, which is frustrating. But it could definitely be in a fort size box. There's, I think there's only two or three punch sheets, too, and they're like very large punch things that you punch out. All of them are five inches by five inches. So frustrating, but that's fine. It's a good game. It's peaceful. It's great. The art design's great on it. Big fan. Well, you got a pile of plays in, too, over the weekend, didn't you? Played it three whole times and love it every single play more and more and more. It's the top of the game on my to-buy list. I just uh, 
trying to not buy a lot of games right now. So when you describe that, uh, Jake, and you were describing the visual piece and the audience it plays into and the style of game, it didn't surprise me. It was an AEG game. Yeah, they've that's, they've really done that's a good a job. Signature age, signature AEG, that kind of thing, you know, that kind of family game, but with a decent uh, quality of decision for a non yeah for an enthusiast audience yeah. and uh, and a slick visual presentation. I'll say I've I've enjoyed looking at it online. The video of some dude fitting about 15 games in the box was almost <laughs> as enjoyable. <laughs> I think uh, speaking of AEG and kind of that family style but uh, you know some deeper decisions type thing. Tiny Towns I would say is in that same ballpark and likewise two tiny towns over big game, same size box. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's a great job. Um, it's it's a great game. Try it out if you can. Another weird, strange thing is one of the graphic designers or artists on this that did this game is the same graphic designer who works on all aboard games. So bringing it back to trains, Bridget Indelico. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Bridget Indelico. Yeah, she's on Twitter. She does a good job. Small world. There it is. We should see if some of the eighteen XX gadflies could make some commentary on the Santa Monica art. One other point I want to hit real quick is Santa Monica is a like city style builder. Like, so compare this to like suburbia. But what I think is better about this one is it's slightly more specific than it is with like suburbia, for example, because each one of the cards is like a little restaurant or a post office or a cool workout beach, kind of like Venice Beach kind of thing. It's a little bit more focused. And I think that kind of makes it a little more charming and magical. Versus compared to like suburbia, where it's like, oh, I got a garbage plant next to my housing complex. You know, it doesn't have as much character there. Sure. It it actually feels a little more urban planning-y-ish. Agreed. And just that little bit of focus really, really, I think, made it shine. So so that is Santa Monica, designed by Josh Wood, published by AEG. And if I'm giving it a mogul scale, thinking it's a 2B, might be a 3C. It could be an argument there, but it's it's pretty light, man. I mean, you, you can figure it out. It's just there's... You kind of got to watch all the little the little symbols on the cards for like stuff. And if people have a hard time tracking that, maybe it's like a 2C or a 3C. But I think 2B is where it is. Sounds awesome. I'll have to give that a whirl. It's funny. Um, literally, while you were playing it, it was on sale at Amazon for $29.99 or something. And I went, oh, it's supposed to be a good game. I should maybe pick that one up and then forgot about it. <laughs> I missed that sale. Sucks for me. So speaking of games that are overly large, Craig, you're getting a workout these days by the Instagram pictures I've seen. Oh man! I, I, when I opened this up, first traps he's ghosting. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, very good, very, very droll. I, I know that's not a hash- that's not a hashtag for me. No, um, we can only wish. Oh, I'll tell you what. I'll put Instagram up for you tonight, Jake. It'll be good. <laughs> uh, no, the game. I. Oh god, man! How am I going to cut into this after we've said that? No. So the ga- when I was uh, looking at this game, Jake, I actually thought of you believe it or not. Mm. And as I, yeah, I did. I did, man, because I was opening it up and I thought, oh, my friend Jake, he'd hate this. <laughs> he'd really, really hate this. Last time we spoke you know, properly as opposed to our type, he said, things are poison or something along those lines. Mm, that sounds like me. Possession- <laughs> Possessions are poison. Stuff is stuff is death. And as I pull out another box and another board and another box and some more plastic rubbish and some more plastic and yeah, this is yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the box and the box is the size of a single Kallax cube. Oh. Utterly bonkers. So I'll stop the foreshadowing. The game is Imperial Spells and Steam by Level Ninety Nine Games, designed by Trey Chambers. Now I bought this on the basis that I really love Argent the Consortium. 
Okay, as a worker placement game with an interesting set of end game objectives, I really enjoy it. And that might be partly nostalgia because it was one of the first heavy games I played when I was getting back into the hobby. But nonetheless, I wanted to give Trey Chambers' take on a train game a chance. And this thing, like, you could just buy the basic version, but then you'd be missing out on the extra plastic you get in the deluxe version. (laughs) (laughs) And you could not buy the expansion, but what if the expansion goes out of print and you really like it? So you then end up with the world's most expensive Cube Rails game ever, and I suspect that will stand the test of time. It's just deranged the amount of plastic in this box. There's plastic cities for the for the economic centers. Every resource is a bit of plastic. Every train is a custom-shaped bit of plastic by faction. The cardboard for the for the cardboard for the IDs are gold leaf embossed. The tiles are about an inch thick. It's for the various uh, spell cars. It's yeah, it's it's crazy production. But the, the I guess the premise of this thing, right? It's a cube rails game set in a Harry Potter esque universe where you have magical trains and you're trying to deliver magical resources to somewhat magical cities. Mm-hmm. There's a race condition, for want of a better term, because once five demand contracts are met by any single one player, the game will end, and the player who delivered the most stuff over the course of the game will win. That's the kind of super express version of the thing. There's some fluff around the side, around mission objectives and stuff like that that you can play to to get some points. But the general vibe is Cube Rail's simplicity of flow, in the sense that it's spatial, it's hexes, all things you'd be reasonably familiar with. But the interface you're using to drive it is kind of more like a Mancala type thing where you are moving an action pawn along an action row on, on your own player board. And you can pay to move it further if you want. So, so far, so Hamburgum, so Imperial. When you get to, you know, you resolve your row, you can activate the spell cards in the row and the spell cards are what let you place cubes sorry, little plastic trains on the board. I'm not sure if it's good yet. I've only played it once. So my initial reaction is mostly about the sheer volume of stuff and the half hour setup time and the one hour put away time to make sure it goes back in the box in the right fashion. And I had fun playing it. It wasn't like it was, you know, it wasn't like I had a bad time, but I do question whether there is like 80 pounds worth of game here. I don't mean the plastic. There's eminently tons of plastic. I mean, 80 pounds worth of game design. Right. Well, that's the frustrating thing. It just seems like these games keep on being designed for people that like there's a disconnect between the game's consumer and the game publisher. Like this would be great for people that are only going to buy three games a year and they play the absolute crap out of them, right? insert any amount of these giant Kickstarter games, right? But it seems like the people who buy these play them twice because they already have 18 other Kickstarters they've bought this year on top of games they buy from their friendly local game store. And then they end up playing this twice, keeping it for three years and then selling it. The thing I'd liken it to, Jake, right? Okay. So I know Mark has purchased a bit of inside information here. Mark's purchased the plastic upgrade kit for Twilight Struggle. Right? Oh yes. Okay. Yes, indeed. And that's a that's a timeless game, right? So you go, well, I, this was top. This is number one on BGG for ages. I really love it. I'm going to play it a ton with Jake, uh, stroke whoever, you know. And therefore, I want to invest more into it because I'm going to be playing it a lot. That design stands the augmentation, right? For sure. Right. Yep. 
And that's where my question mark's over with this, right? Like, if this was a 30-pound Cube Rails game with bits of wood, maybe a 40-pound Cube Rails game with a much more austere production, I'd feel less bad about, you know, the fact that maybe the game will only survive, like, 10 plays, say. I don't know how many plays it's going to survive yet. Like I said, I've only played it once. Right. My fear is you've got, like, 100, 100 pounds worth of material here for a game that might only ever hit the table six times. Right. And for that matter, I mean, you look at the number of cube rail games that have transcended into being lifestyle games. I mean, aside from Age of Steam, there really is. I mean, even Chicago Express, which is arguably the most popular and well-known of the other cube rail games, that definitely hasn't become a lifestyle game by itself either. No. And that's exactly it. I think think that's a really good term you've used there, Mark. It's a lifestyle game in terms of the physical materials deployed, but the actual core mechanisms in the game, it just doesn't feel like that. I'm going to play it more with expansions. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I don't, it's not a sunk cost fallacy thing here. I want to play it enough to try and get some value out of it and see if it's for me and if not, move it on. I'm trying to get better about that as well, moving stuff on. Right. The one thing I will say is it certainly impressed me with the old goblin brain, pulling the shinies out the box thing. The insert's really well designed. The theme and the world building and all that stuff, it's really lovingly done. You know, actually everything around the actual core game design is beautiful. But I'm, I don't know what it is, man. Like, there's a part of me that went, oh, dread, 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 <laughs> as I pulled more stuff out of this box. And I'm sure if you'd have asked Craig five years ago as he was pulling stuff out of this box, if it was dread or joy he was feeling, it would, wouldn't be dread. Now it's like, man, this is just so much stuff to organize. I don't need another job. Right. Well, and it's. I read a really interesting point on Twitter the other day, and I'm not going to be able to attribute it to whoever posted, but um, it was functionally a conversation on that setup variance doesn't necessarily correlate to replayability in a game. Some of them do, you know, but I mean, you can say, take a game like Yokohama. Yeah, it's going to be variant based on how things are set up. But I mean, still, the game is replayable intrinsically Yes. Not because of that. Right? Yes, I would say that the, the setup has very little to do with Yokohama's replayability. Agreed. Maybe if there's something you actually physically don't include all of the parts, maybe that'll do it. But to me, it seems like when you have varied setups, you kind of define the number of plays that you feel like you can get it. You know, like let's take Root, for example. I don't think Root was one of these, but you could probably make an argument that, okay, that has four factions in the base game, probably 12 plays for some people because a lot of things that they like is the exploration and learning of new things. I don't think that's a good argument, but I'm just using that as my top thing. <laughs> yeah, I've learned recently that that is definitely not the case. <laughs> right, without a doubt. But I think there's some argument we made that just to have things to vary and set up, that's probably not going to change it as much as you think. And I think reviewers and a lot of people view that as an extension on the shelf life of the game when maybe it really doesn't do that, you know? Variable setup only imparts more replayability when the variance in the setup leads to a variance of required strategic approach. If the strategy remains the same, but you're just doing it in a slight different order, that's not really a huge amount of increased replay value for me. Oh, and to attribute the quote, Jake, because I saw it more recently than you, I suspect, that came off the Board Game Geek Twitter account. Yeah, I think so. Well, and I think looking at a game like 1849 as an example that has variable setups, which violently warp how the game plays out because each one of those companies really has different strengths and weaknesses. And depending on the order that those come out in and the order of the place that you start in the game really varies in far as what you're going to do in that game. Agreed. With a very small number of selections and varieties, 
every game comes off a little different, even though, you know, a lot of the game is pretty static. The map itself is completely static. It's just literally what order does the company's start completely changes how the game plays. Sure. So to round out this one, because I don't want to let my misery farm overrun your entire episode, I would say my initial cold read of this is that it's a freebie. Right, I don't think there's tons of depth in it. It's it's a not it's a nice enough game, but I don't think it's like super chunky on the letter scale. And in terms of the rules teach scale, I'm split between calling it a two and a three on your mogul scale. I will come back later and update <laughs> you by way of email. Worst case, if my opinion on that changes. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I'm not going to lie, you kind of had me at Cube Rails meets Harry Potter. <laughs> right there, I kind of went, ooh. That sounds fun. That's where they had me too, Mark. So, the only uh, downside yeah. is, okay, Gloomhaven box cube rail. I feel like that kind of undoes <laughs> the whole thing. I, I <laughs> actually got more of a Rising Sun read on it. Oh, God, that game. <laughs> I remember that one month that you uh, complained about the amount of space that God, Rising Sun was, was taking ridiculous. up. Ridiculous. Oh, it was so frustrating. <laughs> so happy I got rid of that game. Oh, dear. Well, on the other side, talking about roots specifically with number of plays and replays, I got to put that to practice over the weekend a couple of times. My kids have been actually asking a lot, especially my son, to play root again, which, hey, right, that's a good thing when your kids are actually saying, hey, can we play that war game again sometime soon? So we obliged them. And I have to admit, I've had a lot of reticence about pulling that out and playing it and relearning it because it has been three months since we played it last and I know everybody doesn't really remember how it is. And plus, my son was lobbying hard for the, okay, everybody plays a new faction this time. Every, new, new, everybody gets something new. Elizabeth, you can't be the vagabond again. Dad, you can't be. The, you know, so everybody has to try something new. So I'm just sitting back, just rubbing my temples going, oh, this is going to oh, be a God. pain because I'm going to have to reteach the whole rules. I'm going to have to figure out how this unique setup works. I don't know. how I, I've never played the lizard cult, so I don't even have a clue how those guys work. OK, so anyway, we set it up and it really didn't go well. Like, literally, I have not seen my wife have less fun in a game <laughs> ever. Like, she's usually pretty accommodating of just about everything. You know, the kind woman has, has suffered through some 18xx and had kind things to say, even though probably not her thing. But uh, this one, she couldn't even pretend that she was having fun. She was absolutely miserable the entire way through the game. And she just she felt horrible afterwards because my son was so excited to play and she kind of felt she was a party pooper about the whole thing. But ultimately, uh, I think the lesson there learned was that bit about that, that notion that, hey, there's four factions. Let's just keep mixing, matching. And there's about 12 plays. Clearly, this taught me that there is absolute benefit, especially from more casual players of it, to just kind of have your faction and get to know your faction well, figure out what that thing can do and master that before moving on to others, because the, that switching factions all the time just ultimately confused people. And oh, agreed. I got to give everybody kudos. My wife pretty much demanded to get back on the horse the next day and try it again now that she knows the faction and to come into it with a better attitude. We actually had a pretty good time. I think it's, again, I don't think this is ever going to be her game, but I think she did acquire an appreciation for the interesting tug of war and know it's not just somebody punching her in the face all the time. Well, and I think the Lizard Cult is known as the worst faction pre-Route 2.0. And I even think after it got balanced, it still is the worst one. I've yet to play it as well. Difficult. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very, very abstract in how to actually make it work. It takes a while to sort out how the pieces actually flow through the lizard engine and how you actually affect things. 
it actually is one of the factions that literally has a nuclear bomb for one of the other factions. Like that, that and the Woodland Alliance is a terrible matchup for the Woodland Alliance. Kind of a mutual hostage taking situation for both of them. One of the worst effects for losing a base is in the Woodland Alliance. They lose like half their stuff. Right. And the uh, the lizard cult has an ability to literally just sanctify away their base. They can just kind of walk in and just, this is mine now. Poof, there goes the base and I'm going to put a garden there in, a, in its place. They really have to ally with each other. Otherwise, it gets bad quick. Now, you're making me want to get root off the shelf again. Like my um, my upgrade kit stuff all landed about two days ago. I could really be playing some root on Friday. That sounds good. I think we will definitely play it again a little more now that we've kind of rescaled the learning curve on that again. Oh, boom, Tish. Rescaled, lizard men. You're terrible, Mark. <laughs> uh, unintentional puns. I have been a dad for a while. I also think that people would definitely stick on their same factions. And eh, the latest one is my son was complaining about how my daughter wins all the time at the at the Vagabond position. And I think it's more the case that I had a discussion with him that, well, no, you have to learn how to stop them. I mean, it's not that she's just going to automatically going to win. It's that if you don't figure out how to stop her, you're automatically going to lose. Right. And I think that gave him a little food for thought. That's great. Yep. In the meantime, the two factions that I played, I played the Riverfolk Company and I played the Airy. I actually almost won with the Airy in the second game. I was one turn away from winning when my daughter did win with the Vagabond. And I actually did win with the Riverfolk Company, which, Jake, I think that is one that you should play. <laughs> it's, it's all about creating a, a free market and kind of moving Costco's into the neighborhood of everybody else. And love it. Yeah, you know, you're taking away everybody else's jobs and you're fattening your pockets with their resources. but kind of fun building that and everybody yeah. likes you because you got stuff for sale i've been really wanting to do that the issue is i until recently last time i played it in person i'd never read the rules to this game um because i'd only played from other people so the idea of having to reread all the rules to make sure i can learn how the the expansion works was bad but i played with my cousins who had an abysmal grasp of the rules so i had to uh read it so now i'm halfway there so all i have to do is uh figure out how to play the expansions and as it turns out destroying building does earn you victory points who would have thought <laughs> So anyway, that is uh, Root by Cole Worley and Leader Games. I think we've given this a mogul score and somehow managed to not capture it on our website. So I'm going to take a respin on it. And uh, given that we're now trying to broaden the bell curve a little bit, I'm actually calling this a 5D. I know I'm probably overstating the complexity on that one, but it's a bugger explaining all of those different factions to everybody. I don't think you are, Mark, Like because you're effectively teaching N games, N being the count of players, plus the underlying universal rules that sit underneath. Although the actual rules in there aren't necessarily that difficult, it's the fact that you're having to marry together stuff that applies to one player to stuff that applies to all players and keeping the audience attention for stuff that isn't their faction, but they should really be listening to because that's how you're going to beat the other right. guy is by understanding how his stuff works. It pushes it up, up beyond just the text in the rules. Absolutely. And there's also little things like uh, setup variability. So if the Vagabond's not in the game, do you still put out the ruins on every spot? I don't know. It's not clear to find for sure. I don't know why you would if there's no Vagabond, but... <laughs> You know, it's, it's little things like that, that even how do you set the game up when you've got uh, the variable factions? Jake, you got a chance to play a uh, war themed game as well. I see one that is a big favorite of mine. Yeah, I certainly did. Don't think this one's a favorite of mine, but 
my uncle Kirk, we were in between two games. We were going to play Santa Monica for the third time that weekend, or we're going to try to break out something else. Um, we ended up trying something else because I've heard Mark said good things about this game. I thought I should play it. Only played one very, very, very shortest game. So it's just kind of first impressions. But I played Air, Land, and Sea by John Perry, published by Arcane Wonders. This is a little World War II. I'm putting that in air quotes because it's very nondescript on really what timeline it is. Game where there's three different areas that you're trying to do kind of a head-to-head card-style laying game to each spot. So, for example, like the perfect quintessential game of this that I think of is Blood Bowl. You have all these different locations. They kind of have different special abilities on each card you play. And at the end, you count up all your points. But the interesting thing about this game, and every reviewer says this, is you concede at a certain point in time. And if you concede, depending on how many cards you have left in your hand, they get a certain amount of points. But man, oh man, did this game bounce off me. I don't know what it is about it. And I don't, I'll try to vocalize what I don't like about it. But I just didn't really enjoy it. One quick little side note. I really don't like World War II as a theme in games. Don't know why. I don't really like it as movies. It's just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not super interested in it. To me, it's like too recent to be like historical nerdy about it, but like not recent enough to kind of have the same modern world society applied to it. So I don't know, just not, not a big fan of World War II in general. And on top of that, this game felt super mean. And in a head-to-head game, that usually is not something I really like. Like I kind of felt like Kirk should be apologizing to me or I should be apologizing to him when I play it. I can play super cutthroat games, but I don't like it when it's just me versus another person that's super cutthroat. I'm more like it where it's kind of a twirling, swirling gyre of anger at different players, you know? So, Mark, are you looking for a new co-host for Gaming Moguls? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Actually, why do you think you're auditioning today? I see. I see. Okay. Um, I'll talk up Airland and see then. Uh, Jake, I'm surprised, man. Like, don't be wrong. We, yeah, there's no account for taste, et cetera. Can I respond to a couple of points you made just in terms of I'll go backwards. So the last point you made about how you feel about head-to-head confrontation, I actually prefer it in a two-player game because there is no other player. There's no choice. It's not like I'm, if I'm targeting you to win and you're targeting me to win, it's not like I'm, it's because I dislike you more, Jake. I'm hitting you. you, I'm hitting you rather than Mark. Like in a three-player game, so let's say a game of my star where it's a bit of a take, take that. If me and Mark, well, Mark and I, rather. Sorry, get the English language bit right. <laughs> if Mark and I decide to pointedly bully you, that's much worse feeding than you and me having a boxing match where we consensually got in the ring and decided to take a few lumps Craig, out of each other. Right? why are you picking on me? Yeah, yeah, totally. But I get it. Like it's some, Sometimes when it's these kind of emotional reactions, you, they don't necessarily make rational sense or sometimes they, you know, they don't, it's hard to convey where those feelings are coming from. So I, I do get it, right? Right. On the actual game, I was surprised. Let's put it this way. I used to love, I still do love, a game called Shoten Totem or Battle Line by Rina Knizia. Famous two-player card game, kind of in this vein, tug of war kind of thing. Um, no special effects. It's mini poke hands, but that's by the by. This has actually fired that for me. Airland and Sea has fired Battle Line. And I don't know if it's a permanent firing. I don't know if it's just kind of like the the novel thing and I've played a heck of a lot of Battle Line and maybe Battle Line's timeless and this is just more entertaining for now. But if you were to ask me which one I want to play at the moment, it's Airland and Sea. I would actually say much of the similar thing about Hanami Koji where um, I love me some Hanami Koji. And I, and I really do still also really like that I split you choose tension that's brought with Hanami Koji. But I got to say right now that uh, Airland and Sea has kind of got all the shiny around it. The thing I can say totally resonates for me, Jake. You were talking about the World War II theme. And 
although I, I don't mind a World War II game, I don't mind it as a setting. I'm probably a little bit older than you, so this, you know, I, I, maybe it resonates with me a bit more. Not that I'm that much older than you. Um, <laughs> but it does have the whole Toy Soldiers theme about it. Like, it's when I'm putting it in front of my wife and going, yeah, it's got soldiers on it, but it's a cool game. Don't yeah, it doesn't really interact with the theme. It's more of a, it's more of a pasted on oh, it's to- paint. It's dressing. Than- yeah. Yeah, stressing. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It's not interacting with the theme in any meaningful way. I think you know. It's not like. Yeah, it's literally just art style. Yeah, uh, which is fine. That's fine, but not not for me. And it's not a reprehensible theme. It's not like a Tanta Curie game or something where I've got to kind of like oh. hide it, in, hide it in a brown paper bag. But I still have that kind of like. I still kind of got this thing with, with Lindsay saying, "Hey, I know it's got toy soldiers on it, but give it a chance." You know, I don't think the theme does it any favors in terms of me sticking in front of people. That said, that's a, like a that's a hyper personal thing. Some people love this stuff, right? Like, you know, enough people buy Escape from Colditz and uh, the Days of Wonder, big adversarial World War II game. That yeah, yeah. that could I'm, just be personal. I, I, I'm a massive World War II fan, but again, that that might be a generational thing. Like, I have no interest in World War One in any way, shape, or form. Probably because of that same thing. It was not far enough away to be historical, but too far away to have any applicability. Whereas I was born less long after World War II than I would like to admit. <laughs> so when I was in uh, grade school and primary school, there was always on like Veterans Day and so forth like that. When I was a kid, there was always World War II vets coming in talking about the Bataan Death March or their experience in the Battle of the Bulge. So there was still a first person connection to World War II in my childhood. And like I said, the, the veneer, it's, it is literally just a veneer in this game with art style, but um, does they ev- evoke a theme of interest? Whereas if it was the exact same game and it was World War One themed, I don't know that I would have uh, gone into it quite as excitedly. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we should get hung up on this World War II thing. I, I mean, like, I have personal people in my family who, like, fought in World War II and stuff. But I just, I don't know. I just, it's it's maybe more or less that it doesn't interact with the theme more than I'm disinterested in World War II. I just guess I bounced off the genericness of the war theme and especially the genericness of the World War II yeah. theme. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's totally fair. That's why I called it. To- <laughs> that's, why I call- that's, that's why I called it Toy Soldiers, right? Because it's. Right. It's. It's just like dudes with submarines, that's sweet. You know, it's just, it's it's not. It's I, I don't know. I, I I'd prefer if this was like space themed or something along those lines. But taking this and applying it to a different game that's very similar, like Blood Bowl, I just really enjoy what that game has to offer with the fact that you're like changing your deck and different battles may mean different things. And kind of over time, you're preparing this different roster of cards versus the kind of really tense head to head bluffingness in this game, and it just kind of bounced off me. So. Did you play? Did you play in rounds, or did you just play a round and put it away? Because I think it. I think it. We played two full games of it. Okay, you gave it a fair crack. Sorry, Jake. I just thought I'd ask. My issue was the first game. I tried to seem like I was losing and try to draw it out, and that seemed to not work. I tried that twice. I guess it was just not a big knowledge of the deck. I had two cards that like boosted all my things at the end, so like all my flip cards. So it kind of like seemed like I was trying to drag him in, drag him and drag him into a long battle, and then win six. And both the times that I did that ended up failing. And so we replayed because that clearly didn't work. I won one round, played the other one. It was much tighter. Kirk ended up winning, but just kind of not. It, it just bounced off me. I don't know. The bit about the conceding, I've I've personally had work for me in an amazing way. I was, one of the last times I played it, I was down, oh, four, you played it 12. And I was, uh, my opponent had eight points and was clearly going to win this round. So if I let it run to the end, the game was done and, and I was going to lose. Within a card or two, I figured out there was, I probably wasn't going to win this one. 
did a quick concede and only gave them three points, leaving them stranded at 11, then came back and won six points the next round to take the entire game. And that's one of those where I sat back and went, man, that concede early thing to not lose a whole bunch of points and then come back and hit it when you got a more favorable lineup. That's awesome. (laughs) And have really seen that play out well in person. I think the comparison to Blood Bowl is fair in terms of the kind of the overall flow. I think the with this, Jake, this is more of a pub game, right? Yeah. I like this for a, a game I can keep in the bottom of my rucksack. Well, and, and, and that's what Kirk really hit it for, too. Yeah, for coffee shops and stuff, right? I think if it either interacted with the theme in a more aggressive way, it would definitely lose that category. You know, like you can't pull out a game that's not Toy Soldiers, like with really gritty art and all that stuff. You know, that's not going to work. But kind of a slightly fun-ish take on a serious theme, it makes it pubby. You're totally right. I guess uh, as I play Air, Land, and Sea and we're at the pub, Jake, we'll have to pick up something different. Oh, at the pub. <laughs> that's happening so often <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> anyway, that's Air, Land, and Sea by John Perry and Arcane Wonders. What would you give this on the mogul scale, Jake? I think it's firmly 1B. I mean, you don't even really need to explain the rules. Just if you're a gamer, I think you can just kind of figure it out. We're going to alternate playing these cards. Flipped over cards mean to play. Here you go. Yep. I-, I would agree with that. And there's definitely more thoughts. It's It's more than rock, paper, scissors decisions. Agreed. It's got to be a B just due to the deck composition. You got to know that, at least in some way, you know. Sounds great. Craig, what else is on your list? Uh, I'm going to sound incredibly one-dimensional. So I decided to take advantage of the pandemic to take some stuff off the shelf of shame, and I took Kansas Specific off the shelf. Kansas Specific, as published by Queen Games, designed by one of the many pseudonyms of John Bora. Um, as Board Game Geek does no bo- longer bothers to list them, nor shall I. <laughs> it's it's very much in the vein of Chicago Express, in so much as it contains priceless shares. You know, um, more point player defined price shares that are valueless at the end of the game. But unlike Chicago Express, it does away with the kind of Euro style interface of action selection, and just says, "Hey, you know that Chicago Express game." What if we recognize the fact that only train gamers really play these things? And yeah, let's just let's just get rid of all that Euro stuff to draw normal people in and make a cube browse game that train gamers want to play. Um, I'm talking a little bit, um, I'm being a bit facetious there, but it trades out that Euro style interface with the dials where you can dial down on the actions and take options away from people for what they're going to do and replaces it with a fixed order of operations Aller 18XX, where the companies will operate in order and they'll do their thing and the presidents of the company will do their thing and only the presidents can control the company's concerns. And at the end of the game, the person with the most wealth wins. So you can probably guess from that incredibly high-level brief that I was actually incredibly engaged with this thing because it felt like from a just a design concept point of view, it was designed for me. It's unashamedly opaque. It doesn't try to meet anybody in the middle in terms of making it accessible to a family audience. I would say outside of a specialist publisher like Hollenspiel, this is one of the most weirdest Cubrail games I've played yet. Well, it's interesting because this is one of the ones that I owned and got rid of. Um, to me personally, I only played it. I didn't give it a good shot. This was kind of before I had a lot of people that really liked Cubrail games. And I really liked Chicago Express and I played it with, I think my game group. And I also played it with my family 
And to me, the game group, it was a little too light. I'd probably just rather play Chicago Express. And then for my family, it was a little bit too opaque with the amount of actions in it. You know, I'd rather take like, I don't know, these states or something along those lines with that group of people. But hearing you say good things about it makes me think maybe I made the wrong decision by having it bounce off me so quickly. This might be one of the ones I circle back to after getting rid of. Well, you can get it cheap. Like you can get it so cheap. If it's anything like the situation in the UK, this ended up on uh, Amazon site called uh, Steve's Collectibles and it was going for about six six pounds like it's in clearance yeah. in the uk it's super cheap until it's not anymore of course but i can see how someone could bounce off it because it's opaque and if you've got a family audience and they win shares for cheap when they should actually be putting a lot of money into the company themselves that's going to lead to a horrible experience it's got the thing where if you start losing early it's incredibly difficult if not non-impossible to climb back from it right. i'm not as i'm not convinced it's actually as good as chicago express i haven't played it enough to make that call yet but it's certainly interesting it's, if, if anything it's a little bit too close to chicago express with the fact the the share mechanisms yeah. lifted straight from it well and that's what i felt i was like okay so i'm playing a different chicago express do i need a different chicago express and at least for me at that point in time i said no because also, I have Paris Connection. Paris, Paris Connection is another cube rail cheap game that I think I got for like $6, where I am totally fine breaking that out with my family. That's a really light game. And it did something completely different to Chicago Express. But I don't know. I like cube rail games like Paris Gates that are different enough from Chicago Express to kind of stand on their own, mm, personally. Sure. You know? So anyway, that's that. But I keep on buying more cube rails games. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong and my tastes have changed since that point in time when I made that decision. I think I got rid of it in like 2018. I think Kansas specific asks a very different question, right? Like with Irish Gage and Chicago Express, they both allow you to kind of disrupt another player's control on their turn, right? You can mess with the action dial to stop someone doing something they need to by dialing it down to zero. Or in Irish Gage, you can lay rail for another company if you've got one share. With this, it's very much more like the 18xx style where if I'm a president of a company, I have complete control over what that company does and no one can meddle with me. And the only way that I'm issuing shares is if I choose to issue shares or if my company is so good that a share is forcibly issued. Like the best company in terms of revenue per share will have a share forcibly issued at the end of the operating round. There's just a lot more individual player control in Counter-Specific. Well, it certainly feels like that. It feels like that's where the focus is. And I think that's why I came off the back of playing a heck of a lot of Ride the Rails. This was the first Cube Rails game I cracked open after Ride the Rails. I don't know if maybe my warm glow towards it is just the fact I was playing something different. <laughs> maybe um, it's resonating more with me than it might otherwise would. But yeah, like I think it's, if you can get it cheap, I think it's worth a crack. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll add it back to my wish list. It's worth it. You know, I've loved these games. Yeah, I've been recently revisiting Chicago Express as well. So it sounds fun to me. Yeah, the only thing I would say, Mark, and I'm not trying to pigeonhole you as the family gamer guy, but I know your family does play. This one, if anything, is family hostile. This is kind of like you want to stick this in front of your train gamer crowd, I think. And if you are putting it in front of your family crowd, then maybe play a few rounds of Chicago Express first to get those kind of auction patterns well and truly baked in before you stick this in front of them. I have a large enough collection that I kind of know how to play to my audience. There's a large corner of my collection that I don't bother to pull out with my family. And that's kind of the... Uh, you know, the Age of Steam, 18xx, Chicago Express corner of my collection that I know that that's maybe just not the game that's going to be best suited for them yeah. to play. And 
give them mini rails. Like, I think mini rails would yeah. be great. And they actually loved ride the rails quite a bit. They thought that was big fun and would love to play it again. So, you know, there's hope. They played Northern Pacific and they loved that quite a bit. So they certainly have some exposure to cube rail games and enjoy them. Well, if they play it, that mean if you get it and they play it, I'll be keen to hear what they say. I'm hoping I'm, I'm hoping to do an episode on this at some point where I talk about it more than at like a superficial level. It's let's say I'm really interested in it. So, anyway, anyways, by the by, um, let, I should probably try and rate it. So I am going to play it safe, guys. I looked at the mogul scale and I saw Chicago Express, and I went, "This is kind of like Chicago Express." The Chicago Express on the mogul scale has a two C. So I'm going to plagiarize your 2C and assign that to Kansas Pacific. I think most Cubrail games are probably in that in that pocket. Some of them might be 1Bs, you know, like... Paris Connection. Yeah, thank you. I was going to say SCNF, and I couldn't remember the, the other ones or whatever. Society, NC, SNCF. I, yeah, I think they're, they're, they kind of just all operate in the same, the same wheelhouse. There's just different kind of flavors of what they actually do. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's great, man. Sounds great. I actually got a chance to do some in real life gaming for the first time since the whole pandemic has started a couple of weeks ago with a couple of good friends of mine that have been uh, pretty bubbled themselves and finally decided on Friday night that we were going to game in person and made it a very, very, very late night of Pax Perferiana and this game, which I got to say, I've never heard of and <laughs> only one person that's played it outside of this group. It's In the Hall of the Mountain King by Jay Carmier, Graham Johns, by, published by Burnt Island Games. Have either of you guys even heard of this game? No. It's come across my BGG feed maybe once. Like, yeah, I've seen it once, but as a, like a box cover and that's it. Sure. So In the Hall of the Mountain King is a game where you're leading a band of trolls to excavate out this mountain to uh, find the statues of their former glory and restore them. And uh, you gain points by doing so, and you also gain resources by getting more trolls in your moot. So it's got the most interesting way of getting resources. One of the actions that you have to do every round is you have to either recruit a troll or you have to dig. I'm, I can't remember exactly right, but when you recruit a troll, you grab one of these trolls off a pyramid, and the amount of resources, they like get better as you go up the pyramid, and they cost more resources or something like that. And then you actually add them to your pyramid. Think Seven Wonders Duel style. But what's interesting is when you put a new troll on there, not only does it add resources to itself, but it also refreshes all of the trolls that are underneath it with resources. So you sort of only want to add trolls when you've exhausted the resources that are down the pyramid from where you're going to put that troll. One of the endgame triggers is that you complete your pyramid. While you're doing that, you use those resources and so forth to dig out inside the mountain and erect statues. Every ring of it kind of has an exclusive that you're like the only person that can erect a statue in that ring. And it gets progressively worth dramatically more points as you get inside. And it's also more expensive. As you dig, you have a limited number of Tetris pieces and you have to. So, Jake, you might hate this one ultimately, but you have to, as you (laughs) dig, find the correct Tetris piece, which you get the resources you cover up or and or pay for the things that you have to dig through if there's rocks in the way. But there's a limited number of those things. So the perfect spot to go in and dig into a new inner level might actually be sold out by the time you get there. So you have to kind of take a more circuitous route with a different Tetris piece. Cool mechanic. Game lasts hour and a half to two hours, and the production on this is out of this world. I could not believe how beautiful it was, whether it was really nice spot UV printing, whether it was the 3D models of the statues you put up there, 
the art by Quan Chai Moria. I, I was very pleasantly surprised by a game that I've heard absolutely nothing about and was a very enjoyable experience. It's very solidly a 3C and uh, would definitely play it again. Yeah, I've, I've heard nothing of this. And when I Googled it, turns out there's actually, it's a piece of music from 1867. Oh, yeah. Well, you know it. I mean, it's that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Oh, yeah. that's it? Oh, yeah, that's God. Hilarious. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. Yeah. Cool. And now I'm, look, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at it now on the Geek Mark, and you aren't kidding, man. This, this is... Uh, this is imperial levels of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and the thing is, it's not actually really a big box. It fits in a really normal-sized game box. It's just that what they put in there is especially nice. And there is two versions. There's a Kickstarter blingy version and a standard not-so-blingy version. But uh, and the one that I played was the Kickstarter version. And holy smokes, everything from how the metal coins were done to the little gems that were in there to the resource tokens, everything about it was just top-notch production. Ah, uh, that would explain it. So the, the it's the same publisher as the re- recent reprint of Endeavor Age of Expansion. Ah, okay. That was a reprint of an old, well-loved game that I remember landing, and that was beautifully produced. So that would totally explain why the uh, artifact you were looking at was quite so wonderful. Sure. Ended up losing quite badly on that one. Both people I was playing with had played it multiple times and kind of knew the important parts and to race for the center and establish dominance in those center rings that are worth an awful lot. And even though I was leading the whole game, I lost that whole uh, end game scoring battle. But looking forward to trying this one again when I can play again next time in person. It was a lot of fun. Sounds awesome. And uh, standard Midway Euro, like I said, 3C on the mogul scale. This is maybe the Uncle Kirkiest game I've played in a while. Like I can see Uncle Kirk <laughs> absolutely loving this game. Gotcha. We'll have to do that. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I, I did that the whole time and finally was told to stop it. <laughs> it's, it's actually reasonably priced as well. The way you're describing it in terms of, uh, you know, is the quality of the componentry and stuff. It's not a bad price at all. Well, you're talking like $40, that sort of price. Be careful, though. That's not the blingy version. I'll, I'll survive. The, the base <laughs> game, I, I got to believe it's the same game. It's just you don't have quite so pretty components. It's the, I'm sure it's the same game. Gotcha. Awesome. Anyway, that is In the Hall of the Mountain King by Burnt Island Games, 3C and the Mogul Scale. Check it out. Fun game. All right. Well, I just got one last game here, but I think it's one that we can actually speak a bit on. So uh, I pre-ordered a copy of Fort by the same folks who did Root and Vast, and leader games here. They're based here locally. And I went to a game store to buy a whole bunch of exit games with my wife because we were looking forward to play some exit games. And... They ended up not having any copies of the exit games, but they had like 37 copies of Fort. So I ended up canceling my online order and picked up one in person because I was done waiting. Brought to the cabin. I thought it was pretty cool. It's obviously a deck building game, but the thing that's really neat about it is instead of it being kind of regular, if you don't play a card on your turn when you discard it, you put it out to the market. And if people take it from you, then it's not going back in your deck. But if you if people don't take it, then they put it back in the deck. So it kind of is a breaking the game with a handful of combos and holding onto cards so you can get the most points. The theme is you're building different forts in your little neighborhood and you're kind of recruiting all these different kids to help you with that task. Bunch of different ways to score points. There's two main resources in it. Some interact with them in different ways, but I thought it was cool. I know you've been playing this game a lot, Mark. What's your kind of thoughts on it? 
Yeah, definitely a deck builder, like you said. What I think is really neat is it combines a lot of the things that I really like among other card games and deck builders. For one thing, I love following actions. I love when somebody does something, and if you're clever and have the right stuff, that you can leverage what they did and do something as well. So, for example, on most of the cards in Ford, there's both a public and a private action. So when you play that, you get to do the public and the private, and then everybody else, if they play a card of the same suit, gets to do the public action. If it's something like increase your fort, which is gets you more victory points and gets towards the end of the game, that's maybe something that you maybe don't want other people to do quite so freely. But maybe you need the private action. Yeah, there's one you know? version that just has it as a private action. So if you that card is intrinsically more valuable than the one that has it as a public action. That mechanic is super fun. And the other thing that's really nifty about it is that you can essentially pump up the power of certain cards by playing cards of the same suit. So you can like add on, like you can, if you have three cards of the same suit, you can basically do that action three times. Well, the secondary effect of that that's interesting is not only pumping it up, but you're also then spending that card so it doesn't go on the market. So you can like, you can play that to reserve it for yourself and put it into your discard pile rather than out on the market for someone to play. Now, the problem is that makes it sound like the best way to play this game would be to assemble one faction and just have all the skateboard cards and then you could like play all your cards out and you're just going to dominate. Wrong. (laughs) There's a massive action efficiency component of this game that if you're not following other people's plays, you're not going to do very well. So you have to strike a very funny balance between having enough cards of your own faction to do well but having enough cards of other people's factions where you can take advantage of their moves. I thought that push-pull was delightful. Completely agree. Have you played this one, Greg? I'm afraid I haven't. I've been. It's not available in my region yet, so I've got it on pre-order. I looked at the runtime of it. I've read some reviews and uh, obviously just heard what you guys had to say, and it looks like it'll fit right into my group for that 40 minutes card game before uh, my child has to go to bed kind of thing. Yep, this is a super filler. Mm. Yeah, it does that super well. It's just uh, it's 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 not too much, but it's it's fast, it's quick, production's good. I think it's good, not great, but a, a good niche in pretty much everybody's collection. I'm okay with good in this bracket, pure on the basis that we tend to burn out on games in this category pretty quick. They get they hit the table every week, so variety spice of life on this one for us. Um, have either of you tried playing it online? I actually have not. I know it's pretty readily available on there on Tabletop Simulator. And uh, Craig, if you ever if you ever want to learn how to play, I'd be happy to meet up with you and teach you sometime. That sounds excellent. That sounds excellent. Uh, I, I normally bounce off um, card games on Tabletop Simulator. I just find the whole wanting to hold the things in your fingers and, and manipulate the cards is intrinsically part of playing card games for me. But to learn something like this, Mark, I will be willing to suffer Tabletop Simulator for a card game. Yeah, and I think actually Tabletop Simulator brings something to the deck builder party. You know, any of these games where it's constantly shuffle, 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 shuffle. I actually prefer to play them on Tabletop Simulator because I hate shuffling really badly. Yeah, and you got to shuffle a lot in this game. It's not a big deck, especially if you have any purging. Yeah, for sure. So you're doing a lot of shuffling. So I actually think you could crack off a game of this significantly faster in Tabletop Simulator than in real life. Agreed. I shall take that advice. Also, one final note about it I think we'd be remiss to not say. Rulebook on this game's not good. No. <laughs> not good at all. No, it is not. I kept on reading it and thinking, <laughs> am I really this out of game's shape? Like, I can't figure this out. Some of the clarifications were not good. There's apparently a pretty big FAQ on BGG already. I've not actually taken a peek at it, but 
come on. And, and they didn't do a very good job with Root either. So I, I don't know. There is one very egregious thing that is missing in there. Like that notion that I talked about where you've got a public and private action and you can play extra cards to pump up that action. It does not anywhere in the rule book say that if I spend a card to pump up the public action and the private action has the same pump up, does that card apply to both or does it not? And I know you had that exact same question over the weekend, Jake. And as it turns out, Mm -hmm. it is in the FAQ and it does explain that, yes, indeed, it does affect both. But that was a confusing thing that we uh, house ruled back and forth each way multiple times over the course of our plays in person. Absolutely. Which is just, it's frustrating. And now I'm, I'm actually on the BGG page. It's a little bit more basic. Like what happens if you run out of the, the components? You just use proxies. That's pretty normal in games, but it's not as much as I'd like. This was a big hit with my family. We did end up playing it three times the first weekend that I got it, taught it once, and then with played it with just my wife and daughter, and then immediately said, oh, we got to play with my son. He'd really enjoy this too. And then, you know, rolled it back and played it again instantly. And it was a big hit from my family, probably for the same reason that Root was a big hit, that uh, that Kyle Farron art definitely appealed to them. Completely agree. So, yeah, that's Fort. I think it's really fun. I really like it. I think it's actually going to be a huge hit in our game group if and or when we actually get together more often, because it's exactly as, as Craig said, it's a really good, pretty varied 45-minute filler. And I think there's definitely potential for metagames to develop and change as you get deeper into the game and learn what's good and then find ways to break that one. So, you know, I can see the level of play get up more and more as people play it more often. If we haven't get a number already, it's got to be a 3C. Yep. Um, yeah, I could maybe make an argument it's a 2C. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be as difficult as it is, though. It's just I think it's a little clunky with most deck builders like Dominion. It's pretty simple on what you do on your turn. It's pretty well defined. But with Fort, they're all the, the the way that you can draft from other people and cards go out and there's certain different special powers you get at certain times. There's a little bit more stuff going on beyond just like the village adds plus one card plus two actions. You know, yeah, it's not as simple as that. I think it's a case where this is a two C if somebody teaches it to you, three C if you try to do it from the book. Right. And you have to make sure to like run it well, like the runner will have to be a three C, but everybody else will be a two C. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well put. I would highly recommend it. Fort by Leader Games. It's a heck of a lot of fun. Craig, did I hear that there's going to be a new podcast coming out of the far east from us called The Cost Rush? Oh, it could be. It could be. Uh, Man, I haven't been this passionate about something not train game shaped, or more to point, not strictly train game shaped in a while. Well, this has trains in it, right? It does. It does. But I mean, yeah, we, we, we won't argue the definition of a train game now, Jake. Let's save that for a podcast where you come onto mine, all right? Um, Got it. So <laughs> this is The Cost. It's published by Spearworks, and the designer is Armando Canales. I probably mispronounced that. There's a recurring theme here. I played this game five times in the week I got it. Part of that was because the first time we played it, tried to learn it cold and muddle through the rules. I wanted to try and secure that learning. But the bigger part was the fact that it just pushed so many buttons for me. Although it's not it's not brass in the sense that it's not a timeless, super epic game necessarily. It's got hints of the brass style interaction in it where I'm watching your moves because your moves create opportunities for me. It's economic, so you have to have the most wealth at the end of the game, but you can choose to pump the wealth you're earning back into the game system in turn to generate more wealth. Um, I should probably talk to what it is rather than just talking to my emotional reaction. The cost is an economic Euro game using the asbestos industry as a setting. So 
The players take the role of asbestos companies trying to make the most money by the end of the four rounds from the various countries that will be represented in the game. There's one country board per player. And these countries are the last countries that have an active asbestos industry. So the activities you'll be engaging in are the mining, milling, and moving stroke selling of asbestos. It engages with the theme in a meaningful sense. You have to invest money to protect your workers, to stop them from getting ill, or you can allow them to get ill, which has consequences of its own. And if you are too, uh, what's the right term here? risk hungry in the way you operate your business, then the country in which you are feckless will close down the asbestos industry wholesale and everybody will lose their bits on that board and have to focus their attentions elsewhere. I was surprised. Like, I mean, normally when I see these Spielworks games come out, they're not necessarily for me. I'm not necessarily the target audience or I'm fearful of... um, want a better term publisher hype where people get really into a publisher and like supporting it and that might like color their view on how good a game is or isn't but this just really worked for me to the point where it's getting an episode at some stage this game is getting an episode i've just got to work out when that is because i want to do the title justice it's just it's great the only issue you guys have got is this one is the equivalent of fort right? In the sense that I can't get four over here. You guys are still waiting for your physical print copies of uh, the cost over there. Right. So what I'd say is it's not cheap because it's Spielworks, which normally means there's less than a thousand copies or whatever. But if you are into your economic games, and for want of a better term, your highly interactive games a la brass, maybe you like the kind of arithmetic type math that comes out of 18xx, See, I'm trying to sell this to Jake here. Um, (laughs) Then maybe you should buy it for your game group or make the time to go on the PC in the cold, cold Minnesota winter. Oh, it's coming soon. And and give it a go, Jake. Yeah, I think I will. Mark, did you end up pre-ordering this game or did did you not? I didn't. I missed it until it actually started hitting people's hands and I started hearing people rave about it. It was not on my radar at all. So this is one of those that after the fact, I'm looking at it going, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah, it's everything we want. It's got an interesting theme that's different than other things. And from what I've been seeing, it's been interacting with it in a somewhat positive way. Positive, not meaning that it's like good Davis Bestos, but it's a more nuanced way. Does it get preachy, Craig? The manual has some breakout boxes where it talks to the asbestos industry. It talks to the six types of asbestos there are and the countries that still have an active asbestos trade. But the game is anything but preachy. The engagement of the theme is pretty much your workers can die if you don't invest money to protect them. And there's a little bit of if you have more dead workers, then you are investing more time ostensibly in business decisions. Therefore, you get to have priority on the turn order next turn if you so wish. The engagement with the theme isn't where this works for me. I think there's a degree of mechanical rigor here. The interaction between players, I'll give you an example, right? Let's say Jake builds an asbestos mine. He's player one. And on an island, he goes, okay, I'm going to build an asbestos mine. Okay, so he's going to be mining raw asbestos. And he does some other stuff on around it, but that's pretty much all he does. And then Mark goes on the same island and goes, oh, you know what? I can't let Jake have that. I'm going to build a mine too. Well, I go, well, I'm third player. I'm going to build all the transport links on that island. I'm going to put, there's double rails available and I'm going to build loads of rails on the island. Now, here's the thing. If you can take an action during the operations round, for want of a better term, you must take an action. So you guys will be operating those mines, okay? And you also will be moving those uh, asbestos dice around the place. You haven't got a choice. And 
when you move those dice over my rail links, I will make money. And if I do it right, I'll make more money from moving your asbestos than you make from selling it. Okay. <laughs> that sounds delightful. So it's that kind of thing where, of course, then you guys, okay, well, he's making more money off this island than we are. And why would I carry on? So I'm not going to protect the workers here. So you stop right. paying to protect your workers. Next thing you know, in a round time, there is no island for me there anymore. <laughs> You've invested your efforts on island B or island C, and I'm sort of going, oh, well, I really regret building those rail links because, you know, and there's a degree of brinksmanship there. Do I carry on building rail links there to try and get more money out of you, or do I need to chase you to the other island, or do I need to be producing my own asbestos to be part of that game? It's, it's really good. Like, I'm nowhere near decrypting it yet. And it's it's really deep. Although it's a classic Spielworks manual of just just bad manual, man. The, the manual that comes in the box is that's not fair. It's a hard work manual. I'm not going to say it's a bad manual. Everything's in it, but it's walls of text. And maybe I can't think of a smarter way to convey the, the concepts. But you come away from reading that manual somewhat tired. My piece of advice to you would be there is a more complete manual that didn't actually make the printing presses available on the BGG site. So just download that and it covers a couple of cases. The the printed manual doesn't. If you're into heavy games, and I think I've graded it accordingly. Yes, I have graded it accordingly. Then this one's worth your time. I'm looking right now at the BGG store. It is available for pre-order for $95. It's not cheap. I mean, I didn't. I was like you, Mark. I nearly got caught flat-footed because I heard off... Um, one of our friends, I think it's Christoph Schneider, about the game. And my local game store picks up the Spielwerk stuff anyway. They Everything. And I normally I thought it was because of me recommending it to him. It has now translated into him auto-ordering it for me, whether I'm going to buy it or not. So he got, me, <laughs> so, he, so he got a copy in for me, and I'm grateful for that. Like I say, it's not cheap, though. And it's, it's not a ton of stuff in the box. This is the exact opposite of Imperial, right? You're like, you open it up and you go, okay, there's a standard Euro game amount of stuff in here. Why is this $90? It's a bit more like the splatter model. Yes, very much so. Very much. And this is the opposite though, right? Like where's the Imperial? We go, there's a load of stuff in this box, but is there enough game design? I'm not sure yet. With this, you play it once and you go, right, that's what I was paying for. I wasn't paying for the cardboard and the stuff printed on it. I was I was paying for the development and the playtesting and all the other bits around that. Yeah, this is great. We're going to have to figure out a way to get a copy mark. One of yep. us will have to. <laughs> I, I'm sold. <laughs> well, I will return the favor if you give if you teach me fort, Mark. If you guys can suffer tabletop simulator, I'll be more than happy to give you guys a run at the cost. I shall do the thing that all the listeners are here for now. I shall grade it on the mogul scale, uh, the best scale there is. Um, it is a 4D. Gotcha. Okay, I'll go to why. Uh, the weight of decision is sorry, the depth in this. I think I've spoken to that. There's tons of interaction. The play is all above the table, and the decisions aren't obvious because if you know, the right decision is dictated by what someone does next and what someone does before you. It's great like that. However, not, there's enough stuff going on that the teach is a good solid half hour teach. And I've got the teach down for this pretty smooth now. You know, I don't think I'm doing a sloppy teach and it's half hour of straight download. Hmm. But on the flip side, it's not a 5D because we're all playing the same game. Sure. Well, that sounds right in the sweet spot of what I would enjoy. So I can't speak for Jake, but I'll take you up on that offer for sure. Grand. We are running a bit long today. Uh, we actually took our last episode off. We had a little bit of late summer hiatus as we were all taking vacations and so forth. I got a nice time up in the Boundary Waters to do some canoeing and play a lot of Teach You, but that's actually not the game that I want to talk about, though I would love to. What I do want to talk about is a really awesome import game that's been 
recently picked up here in the U.S. by Come On Games. It's Airship City by Masaki Suga. This is one that came out about 30 seconds before the pandemic hit. So I picked up a copy, never got a chance to really pull it out and play it in person. Since then, I've played it with my family and have played it online in Tabletop Simulator. It was recently released on Tabletop Simulator, and oh, this game is so good. (laughs) This game is really good. It's functionally in the same family as Istanbul and Yokohama. It's that whole thing where you move pieces around and do the action on the location. And meanwhile, you're trying to fulfill contracts and get resources to do things with. It's, it's that same exact formula that both Istanbul and Yokohama use. What makes this interesting is two things about it. Number one is that the locations are fluid in Airship City. Whereas you have a static city in both uh, Istanbul and Yokohama, this one is a set of buildings that are functionally flying, right? They're all airships. So you can spend hard-to-come-by resources to essentially shuffle the board. You can make rows or columns rotate so that, well, I can't really, I don't have enough moves to get to that space that I need to get to, but I can rotate the board and bring the ship to me. (laughs) And that's another layer of complexity that's really interesting. Now, conversely, hey, okay, I'm only one move away from the spot I really need to go to, and oh, son of a gun, that dude before me just moved (laughs) the entire board, and now it's on the other side of the board, so I have to spend resources to move it back if I want to go there. That's an amazing change to the game. The second thing that I'll say about it is it is both simultaneously thinkier and less fiddly than either Yokohama or Istanbul. It's kind of more in that 2D pocket. In fact, I'm calling it a 3D ultimately, where it is thinkier and less fiddly than either of those two other games. And that's really a sweet spot. Jake, I know you're such a big fan of Yokohama. And Craig, I think this is right up your alley as well. Well, I happened to see it about two years ago at Essen when it was released. And it went straight off the shelf. It was on one of the, um, it was in the kind of, the, you know, you can queue on Saturday morning and you might get a copy. And yeah, you had to be up early on the Saturday <laughs> morning to get a copy of this. I learned something on your podcast every time though, because I'm looking at the show notes and this has received a printing by Cool Mini or not. Yes. So I figured if I didn't get it at Essen from um, whoever the original publisher was, sorry for my ignorance there, I'm, I'm never getting it, but it's actually been picked up by Simon. Yeah, it's an Asian publisher, yeah. Yeah, it's been picked up by Simon. That's, that's, that's awesome. It just hit the stores like uh, early March here in the US, and I think one of my very last uh, kind of just game browsing trips before the pandemic hit, I saw that on the shelf and went, ooh, I've heard good things about this game, <laughs> and came home with a copy, and man, I'm glad I did. I've got to ask a question then. Have Simon given it a treatment or is it just the same same thing with a Simon badge on it? No, same thing with a Simon badge. It has all of the things you love about an Asian game production. It's a small box. It's the, the graphic design is very oink-like. It's in the same size box as The Expanse. So it's not a small box game. It's like a half size, normal Euro standard box. Right, right, right. I'd say it's the... Uh, right. Uh, it's that thinner kind of inch and a half thick, 12 inches wide, eight inch. It's very minimalist in both its art style, iconography and production. And so, no, they did a beautiful job with it. It's just what the Asian production was. I think I haven't actually physically seen it, but I've seen pictures and it looks the same. But with a Simon badge. I'm pleased to hear that. Like, I don't get me wrong. I'm not anti minis in the right place, but the original art package looked, you know, it had character, right? And it would be a shame for that yep. to get just chucked in the round filing cabinet. Yeah, there is absolutely no other game that looks exactly like this one. It's very evocative. It's very uh, airy. The iconography is good. I I really like the look of this game. I don't believe it was actually terribly expensive, too. It was kind of that mid $30-ish price range. So 
very affordable as well. Well, I will have a look for it down my friendly local game store, virtually, if not literally. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, one of the things we have talked about an awful lot in this episode so far is games that have sharp elbows and a lot of high amount of interaction. And our main topic tonight are games that have a lot of direct interaction and conflict, and specifically ones that aren't really friendly direct interaction, like These are the games with the sharpest of elbows. These are the games where you directly interfere with somebody's plans. You throw the spike strip in front of their tires. You uh, knock the wind out of them. Anything you can personally do to screw over their day. And these are the games we're talking about today. Now, we also wanted to make it a little more of a nuanced take on this. Like, it's very easy to look at these games and say, well, you know, every head-to-head game on the planet is exactly that. Like Twilight Struggle, super interactive, super elbow to the face. That's too easy. We didn't want to go there. We also didn't want to talk about games that were just directly dudes on a map game because kind of the same reason, right? A game like Inish is very conflict related. That's a little too obvious. So we're looking at games that are normally wolf. That These are kind of wolf and sheep clothing games. These are games that look like standard Euros, yet are violently interactive and uh, may lead to some hurt feelings. Absolutely. What we've done, uh, Craig, Jake, and I have each put together our top three. We're going to do this in a round-robin fashion. We've all cross-referenced each other's list to make sure that we're not talking over the top of each other. We're going to list our items in uh, whatever order we see fit and crack-wise momentarily on each one of them. That will probably have a few honorable mentions, and uh, it should be a great conversation. So, Jake, kick me off. What's your first uh, sharp elbow punch to the face game today? All right, this is... Both the game has sharp elbows and also the players do as well to each other. I'm talking about Age of Steam by Martin Wallace slash John Bohr, published most recently by Eagle Griffin Games. Um, Age of Steam is absolutely brutal. Mark called it a cube rail game, which is not true, by the way. Just want to clarify that from earlier in the earlier in the conversation. Yeah, I agree. But to a layman, it certainly appears to be. Absolutely. So what you're doing in this game is you're building down different tracks to different cities, um, moving goods around. But what makes this so brutal is there is a couple of things. Turn order matters more in this game than I think pretty much any other game that I've played. And you're always bidding for that. And then secondarily, the reason why turn order matters so much is you need to move these things before somebody else. So for example, if Mark, we're all playing a thing and I need to go first, I could win that thing. But then Mark could take the special ability to actually deliver goods before me And then kind of undo half of the benefit of me going first and maybe take resources away from my network and use them. Therefore, meaning I can't use them. So things just brutal. A lot of cursing going on in this game, a lot of anger, but it's absolutely one of my favorite games. And I think it's because it's kind of a, as I said earlier, a more whirling amount of picking on people. It's kind of more situational and tactical versus kind of large and longstanding strategy wise. That's Age of Steam. My number one. This is a game that actually scares me. Yeah. All right. Like, I love it and I'll play it anytime, any place. But every time I got to kind of. You got to be in the right mentality. If you're in the wrong. Yeah, I got to cinch my later hosing up a couple notches before I sit down to play this one. Absolutely. Because it it is just brutal. Um, Speaking of brutal games, I'm looking at your number one or number three, Craig, and it's actually weirdly similar to Age of Steam. Yeah. Now, I just saw on Age of Steam, I had to push through a membrane of really not liking that game. And like (laughs) being bad at that game hurts. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's well put. It's it's not that I don't like the game. I'm afraid of it because I'm bad at it. And I know that it, things can go horribly wrong in so many ways when you're not good at that game. 
Bus was originally published in 1999 by Splotter and more recently republished by a joint publishing between Splotter and Capstone Games. It's designed by Jerome Derman and Joris Visinger, and I've probably mispronounced those. This will be the second train crash this show. <laughs> it is a game set in a city that's ostensibly kind of America, kind of Holland, where passengers in the city can only come in by train. So it must be set in Europe, you know, the, the, the reliance on trains. And But when they get into this city, everybody travels everywhere by bus. The players take the role of bus companies trying to create lines around the town to move these passengers to their destination. It's played over the course of a variable clock, so uh, you probably tell what I might like it. Essentially, it's a player-defined clock, and I'll explain that in a moment. And when the game ends, the person who has moved the most passengers around this town wins. Now, why is this so pointy-elbowed? It's essentially because every action spot on that board so it's a worker placement game it's a two-phase worker placement game you have a planning phase where you place your workers out and then you have a resolve phase where you like a book left to right top to bottom lift the workers and resolve the actions everything you do can potentially interfere with the plans of another player I mean, it's the only game I know that has a... I'm trying to think of a nice word for this that's going to not lose your NSFW uh, rating for the podcast on our <laughs> iTunes. It's the only game I know that has a be a very horrible person spot, the time machine, that makes absolutely no sense. You know, it's, it's totally Dutch bonkers. Right. But if someone goes on that spot and you've planned around a certain thing happening in terms of the time progression of the game and they say, no, I'm activating the time machine... In that we're not going forward. That could be the difference between you picking up four points this round and picking up zero points this round. It's brutal. And what's wild too is it's not like you get all your workers back. Every single part of this game has implications on anything. Mm. It's not like, okay, I'm playing with my workers and figure it out. Through phase one, you may not know what people are going to do in phase two, and you can screw people in every one of those phases. Oh, totally. The damage isn't just limited to them scoring no points. So the clock on the game is when all bar one player has spent all of their workers because the workers, you have 25 of them, which sounds like the world's worst Euro, 25 workers to place every round and they'll pick them back up. No, no, no. You've got 25 workers and you only get to spend them once. Uh, you have to spend a minimum of two a round. But if I spend five this round and Jake spends three, and then Jake he spends his three, however, just to mess up my five workers, he's probably got a better deal there. Right. It's classic splotter design where the interaction ripples through it. Every move somebody makes matters to you and the potential for negative interaction is huge. And they said that your rows were nice. Yeah, this this design is just so rare now, I find, you know, like this kind of timeless, every action you do interacts with everybody else. You know, it's almost like the antithesis of kind of the modern Euro design ethos. You actually broke Uncle Kirk on this one. Oh, I know. He called it Chessy. And I'm like, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to pass. Like, you know, your first game you play of this, you will struggle to even see which way's up. Like it's not Age of Steam, right. you you know you're hurting. Like when you're bad at Age of Steam and it hurts, that comment I made earlier. Well, in this, you don't even know you were playing a game. It's kind of like I I I scored a point. How how does that work? You know, and the winning scores four <laughs> points. You know, it's just crazy. It defies all kind of expectations and modern gamers' ability to kind of read what the game is. You have to play it a few times to even work out how to play it competently, let alone well. Yeah, completely agree. I haven't actually put a rating for this, guys. Have you rated it before? 
We call this a 2C, actually. I think that's reasonable. I think, does your mogul scale account for opacity? Because the rules the rules are simple enough, no. right? I think there might be a bit more than C depth. I could be wrong, but it's the opacity for me on the first few plays that's what makes this kind of a hard one to pitch. I think you can make a solid argument at this being a 2D, actually. Sure. That's bus, available in all good bookstores, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right, Mark, hit us with your number one. All right. My number one I'm going with is Barrage by Tommaso Battista, Simone Luciani, and Cranio Creations. Uh, this, is, this is a solid pick for my game of the year. I, I love this game, but boy, there's been a couple people I've played it with that have had bad times with it because of the fact that the whole game is about utilizing water that flows downhill. And if you do something upstream from them that takes all their water, they're literally sitting there fish out of water with nothing to do and no way to change it. And and that's excessively painful. I now have no income and I need income to buy my way out of this situation. I'm hosed and I'm sitting here for the next two hours having a bad time. To me, that is definitely a plus of the game, that it is that interactive and it is that excruciating. And frequent plays lets you learn how to mitigate that a little bit better. But, uh, you know, the elbows are awfully sharp in Barrage. And I love the game, but eh, I can see why that's not for everybody because of those sharp elbows. Jake, I know you've played this one, Craig. Any experience with Barrage? I'll let Jake go first. Yeah, I, I, I like this one. To me, it probably does the whole quote that's been attributed to the splatter folk by saying, if you can't lose on the first turn, why have a first turn? This is probably one of the few games that feels like a regular, normal, modern 2020, 2019 Euro with all the different options and all the production, everything. But it has that you can lose the first turn hard stop. So then it kind of ends up being this whole, is that good if people are coming with the expectations? I've kind of waffled on Barrage. I think I like it. It's definitely me. I agree. It's definitely one for the list. It qualifies. I've waffled on it too. I like the core flow of the <laughs> sorry of the water going down <laughs> the hill. The mechanism we're all kind of fighting around, right? I think that deserves to be more games, that kind of thing. I think that's a meaningful sort of interaction. I guess there's two reservations I have around it. The interface with that is, and I know it's your guy's signature, so please don't take offense. The interface that you use to operate this thing, for want of a better term, is incredibly Euro, right? It's the place handfuls of workers on the board. Some spots cost more workers than others. You've got three different types of resources. There's a Terra Mystica type wheel where they spit back out the end. And that doesn't keep me warm anymore. That's not the people who like that sort of thing. It's it's a really good implementation of it, but that doesn't draw me in. I've also got question marks about the balance of, it just seems like some of the combinations of player boards and secretaries are empirically better than some other combinations. And these darn things are assigned randomly. So it's like, okay, I, oh, I've got this combination. That looks okay. What's your combination? Oh, 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 it's, oh, do we need to play? But like I say, that's a really cold read. I haven't played it enough to be, that's not necessarily entirely fair. I want to play it more to actually test that theory, right? Like, you know, it's that whole thing of, what was it you said earlier, Mark, about your son? And now I feel bad because I'm going through the same brain patterns, right? Maybe there's something I could have done <laughs> to change that as opposed to blaming the combination. Sure. Yes, I do think that they aren't super well balanced. Um, we've taken to drafting them. And I've heard, though I pandemic hit, this would have been a gimme if it wasn't for the pandemic, but I've heard the additional factions in the expansion help significantly as well. 
Sure. I say I, I have yet to add more content because I've done the whole thing of trying to milk the core content first. But if you're telling me that adding the extra stuff will, you know, let's say, give me more options to get have more balance in the uh, player setups, then I'll take that under advisement. I believe it's more of a toolkit type of expansion that you don't have to play with everything and just use the different people inside it and just use that part and you've already improved it. So I've probably got a sour experience of this or impression of it. But for the record, I like it. So I won't say waffled. For the most part, I think I, I like it. I'm just not playing as many Euro games as I used to. I think that what may have soured me, however, was the guy who taught it to us the first time picked the most powerful board. I'll use that one. I think it's the Italians. I say most powerful, no. most, the most obvious to drive <laughs> when you don't know what you're doing. And then he right. picked out a decent secretary out of the bag. I'm like, okay, but like literally picked, not random picked. And I'm like, great. Okay. And it's just absolutely crushed us. And it's just the thing you shouldn't do when you teach a game like this. Nope. Nope. That's yeah. That's bad experience from the plane. Play the American if you're trying to do it hard, hardcore mode, right? So yeah. But that said, the actual legislature of the game taught perfectly. So I learned how to play barrage and I taught somebody else the next time. And I obviously picked the Italians and that exact uh, secretary as well as you do. And uh, no, just kidding. No, good pick. Jake, what's your number two? My number two is another splatter game, which I did have to fight back to just not put all the splatter games on here. But I chose, I think, the personal one that I feel is the meanest of them. I'm speaking of Food Chain Magnet, designed by Joran Druman and Joris Rasinga. What you're doing in Food Chain Magnet is your different food chains trying to service a, a neighborhood. This game is just brutal because you can just lose so bad in the first like three turns. And not that it's like a rote opening. There's a lot of strategy to it, and people are always constantly questioning what's good in it and all that stuff. And I'm not super aware of the really hardcore meta in this game, but it's just evil. You know, you get in pricing wars with your people and you undercut them by like $3 and they don't get to sell any of their stuff and then just goes to waste because you're able to do that. And they're not fast enough to be able to pivot because they went later than you or whatever in the turn. It's just everything about this game can just make somebody just feel like they got slapped around for an entire afternoon. I love it, but that feeling is probably the reason I don't bring it up to play as much as other ones, just because you can just be drowning the entire time, and not everybody is willing to learn that whole situation. So that's my number two, Fuchin Magnet. It's brutal. I've played it exactly once with you and haven't played it again since then for kind of exactly that reason. We waterboarded you for a good uh, hour and a half. And <laughs> well, and I know you know what you're doing, and I'm like, well, I, I could play. Well, I don't know if I know anymore, but I, at one point in time, I played this game a lot. I've lost lots of people to this game for similar reasons. Like I want to explore it more, but yeah, you it can easily be something where you're just thrashed around and you feel like you've achieved nothing. So if right. there's a too big a skill gap. I think a lot of these games, the common thread is it's very important to play with people of similar skill level and you kind of all come up together and get good together. I think any of these games, if you play with somebody that's good at them, you're going to have a bad experience because they're going to, like you said, waterboard you for two hours and there's nothing you can do about it. All right, that was my number two. What's your number two, Mr. Craig? Uh, so my number two is Tammany Hall. Uh, it's published in 2007, and it's currently available through Pandasaurus as a publisher and designed by Doug Eckhart. It's, um, it's set in the 1800s, like most of my favorite games are. But instead of operating trains, you are trying to become dominant in New York City politics. The game is essentially an area control game but played with the right number of players, um, which is, tends to be the higher end of player count. 
it provides an experience where, for want of a better term, everybody is managing everybody and everybody is trying to encourage other players to overspend in closed fist, um, or more point sealed bid auctions. And here's the thing, right? Essentially, okay, let me let me redefine this slightly. You're looking to have control of the most wards in New York City over the course of, I think, three election terms. Okay. Whoever does the best at the end of the first election term will be the mayor and will give special powers to all the other players, i.e. positions in their council, with which they can mess him up or mess anybody up. But let's face it, you're the mayor, you're the leader, you're the one who's most likely to get messed up. So not only is everybody beating everybody else up, if you're the mayor, you're giving them the weapons with which to do it. This game is one of those ones where I have to feel suitably resilient to want to engage with a game of it, which, you know, you have to be in the right mood to play Tamley Hall. In the phases before the auctions, you you take turns placing workers on the board. Well, they're not workers, actually. They're kind of, they're your officials, and you can choose to place them in pairs, in which case they'll win you lots of votes, or you place them by themselves and with an immigrant of a certain uh, nation, which will win you favour with that nation. It's those, uh, the favours represented by discs, and those favour discs are what you bid with in the auctions. So if you're in a ward that's got Irish people in and you've got lots of Irish favour, then you can spend Irish favour discs in that ward's election. It doesn't take long for someone to, who looks like they're going to win a lot of elections, stroke auctions, to suddenly have no currency with which to bid. So they're just going around the remaining auctions just being absolutely beaten up, losing everything that they've invested people into and just having a duff around. It's something else. This is a game that it's an experienced game. The actual rules book, I looked at the rule book before I came here, actually. The rule book is six pages long. There's not a ton of rules here. From a legislature point of view, to enable the experience, you could teach most gamers this, uh, you know, in a trot. But the kind of the viciousness of the experience is definitely, well, it's my number two most vicious game. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always wanted to try this one, but it was on a print for a while and then I just didn't hop on the reprint. But the like this time of American history with the the Tammany Hall politics, it's interesting. If you ever want to research it, it doesn't seem like it's that out of line to make a crazy game about it. Yeah, it seems like the theme is definitely on point. I don't I don't even know anybody that owns this game. No, I think it's one of those games that was like a big deal before we started getting into games again. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And then the reprint we just kind of like slept on. So yeah, if you can find a copy, definitely give it a go. It's an experienced game. Like I say, uh, a friend of mine, Jonathan, who really loves games with negative interaction, we tried playing it with him at down the games club and he wanted to stop the game like two rounds in because he was just so far out of position. And it's, you know, bear in mind, this guy loves games with negative interaction. He's, he's an age of steam wizard, but right. it was, he just wasn't in a receptive mood for it. And that we, we carried on playing because, you know, well, we all want to play and Jonathan will have to suffer. But, the point I'm making is it can bruise even people who think they like fist fights. You know. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'd be in for that, but yeah, there's a limited number of people in our group that would be down for that experience. That's for sure. My number two is another one that I have to pick my battles on that. I know Jake, I can get you on board to play this anytime, any place, but uh, it's not for everybody in our group. This is maybe the pointiest game of all the ones that I have because Literally, you can end up with negative points. In fact, the winner can end up with negative points. It's The Estates by Klaus Sock and Capstone Games. 
hyper interactive. Uh, you can beat people up with the auctions and getting the properties. And uh, you really can beat people up by m- making sure that they can't ever complete their little subdivisions so that their stuff not only doesn't score, that it scores negative points. There's a million different ways that you can just flat out screw people. <laughs> and, and that ain't for everybody. We've spoken to this at length before. When I've been on the podcast, it's a it's a phenomenal game. It's amazing. And unfortunately, this is the type of game that has kind of fallen victim to the pandemic. Like the people that I see that would enjoy playing this one aren't the people that I'm seeing in gaming with on a regular basis. So I could maybe pull this out on a Wednesday TTS night with some of the people, but um, yeah, this is definitely one that is not going to be for my family. My son loves it. Wife hates it. <laughs> She's the care bearer of the family. So I've just learned that, that maybe this isn't the greatest family game. I'm not convinced it translates to an online experience either. Even if it was available on Tabletop I Simulator, think so. yeah. I think the kind of the, 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 the joy of seeing someone's face as you put the one on top of their tower they lovingly built in a row, you know it's going to score. It's just that when they can hide behind a screen and you can't see them wince. And there's the whole kind of reading people in the auctions as well, right? Oh, for sure. You're not going to get that on online, which is a frustration. And I know it's a universal frustration. Sorry to moan, guys. But this is this is not one of those ones for me that translates well to a TTS. We have actually evolved our interaction a little bit to uh, be more verbally emotive with just being loud expressions of outrage, you know, being that you can't read people's faces. We've all gotten a lot better at just going, no, on the mic when somebody does something that really <laughs> affects you. That certainly filled a bit of the gap and made it more fun. Yeah, but you have to remember, I have a disability. I'm British, so that's, <laughs> that's okay, never that's never going to happen. <laughs> uh, like a recent online play of uh, Chicago Express had a lot of that, and uh, Antiquity as well, both of which are pretty <laughs> extremely interactive games. There was a lot of gnashing of teeth during that play. That is my number two, The Estates, Capstone Games. It's a great game, but uh, you got to have the right crowd. Jake, what's your number three? My number three is probably the easiest game that you probably see on here. Um, I will say 18xx and specifically some of the meaner ones that I've played as 1849 and 18 Ireland, respectively. 18xx games are super interactive. They can be really negatively interactive by maybe floating someone's company, tragic tracking them to hell, which is my favorite thing to do to Mark in games. But there's specifically in 1849 and 18 Ireland, they're even meaner. I mean, 1849, you can just completely explode just because somebody issued too much. Or you can dump a company on them. And it's just evil. But in 18 Ireland, what's also amazing is I've done the meanest thing I've ever done in these games where I held the majority position to dump a company on somebody. I can't remember the specifics, but functionally, I convinced somebody to merge two companies together to give them a more garbage 10 share company instead of just dumping a five share on them, which is really fun. And you can just do some shenanigans in 18 Ireland that make people very mad and very sad. And for those non-18xx players and our listeners, dumping a company is referring to when you you basically suddenly and unexplainedly sell off all your shares in a company, transferring ownership to somebody that probably didn't intend to or want to be the owner of it. And by the way, if you did it correctly, you're settling them with tons of liability along the way. So it's like, oh, not only do I get this worthless company, I have a company with ton of liability that I actually can't afford to pay through. And I didn't plan or ask for any of this. One last dumping story. We were playing 18 Max and in 18 Max is a national railroad, but the national railroad is hamstrung by only being able to cross by trains for face value. 
and I dumped the national on somebody because they merged into it with no trains and no capital. And it was the best thing I've ever done in trains ever. Come on. I didn't end up winning, but name names. Who'd you beat up? I dumped it on Eric F E K. I dumped it on him <laughs> and Phil was there to watch it. It was great. Three player max is not very good, but that was a wonderful experience. So 18 XX, it's pointy. I've got to ask a question, Jake. Sorry. I thought you used to hate 18 Island. I do. I don't. I don't like it. Oh. <laughs> it mean it's not. It's not pointy. It's. It's. Can you argue that eighteen Ireland is not one of the most pointy eighteen XX games? No, that's fine, Jake. Okay. No. 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 I was just wanted to clarify there. So I was wondering yeah. if I might get a game out of it with you, but that isn't a. I'll play online. That's fine. I'm just not buying that game. No thanks. <laughs> I don't need that piece of garbage. My my beef with eighteen Ireland is it's too pointy, and it's pointy in a accidental way. Yeah, you can minefield that game real bad. I've played too many games of that where I was in fifth place and I accidentally got in the way of the fourth place person. And neither one of us have a prayer of winning. But then not only am am I not winning, now I'm not winning and I can't do anything for another month of an online play. Yeah, I've been there with online play. That's the problem with async for me. Like if I get into a bad position, uh, it's not. Uh, yeah, it is because I'm a sore loser. No, it's just hard to want to keep checking this thing that you know you're functioning <laughs> out of. Right? It's why I've taken to just playing online 18xx live now. You just got to find the right group. I just started a game of 1832 yesterday, and we're already in the f- five trains. Yeah, but I'm the guy slowing it down, Jake. Like I'm out. Awesome. I'm out of time zone, right? So you know, we got to get all your all, all your UK folks. You in Spain and all the all the Central Europe. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. They know better though, Jake, you see. (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Well, there's trains. They're mean. We've spoken on it at length on all of our podcasts. You can beat the crap out of your friends using train. Try 1836 Junior if you're looking for a mean one to play, Jake. Oh, I played that one. That was just the game was mean to me. I uh, I have to replay that one. That was awful. We should do 18xx.games of that. Ugh, I I played so poorly. I digress. Craig, what's your number one choice in the elbowy, pointy, quit hurting me games? Sure. It's also 18x. No, it's not. <laughs> My number one choice is Vanuatu. A second edition of this was released in 2016 by Quined Games or Quined Games rather. And it was designed by Alain Epron. It is a Euro game set in on the island of Vanuatu. Uh, we are all Vanuatuans. I'm sure that's how you say it. trying to make the best of our lot by increasing our prosperity prosperity being victory points uh, by operating the tourist industry fishing diving for treasure all wonderful island activities over the course of some number of rounds i forget right now once some number of rounds is over the person with the most victory points wins so far so euro what makes this clever well it's a planning phase, resolving phase type affair where we will place workers or the really more likely action discs on the planning board, top of the board. And there's various actions you can do. You can move your boats, you can fish, you can dive for treasure, you can take tourists to an island, you can build a, a little um, shop on an island, all sorts of things. There's various islands on the board. Your ship has to be near it. Details, details, right? The key thing here is this is what makes it mean. At the end of the planning phase, we're going to take a look across that planning board and we're going to take turns choosing to resolve one of the spots. Now, I can only resolve a spot if I have the majority of discs or stroke workers, whatever you want to call them, in that section of the action board. So let's say I want to move my boat and Jake has placed three discs and Mark has placed two discs and I have placed a meager single disc. I'm not going to be moving my boat for a while. So I'm going to have to look across the board. Okay, I've got the majority in fishing. That's great. But my boat's in the wrong place and I really need to move my boat. 
And if I fish where I am right now, there's no fish. So, hmm, what else can I do that I've got a majority on? Oh, I've got a majority on, um, I don't know, picking up a bonus tile. I'll, I'll pick up a bonus tile and uh, we'll move on. And hopefully you guys will have moved your boats by then. Jake and Mark look at the board and they say, well, Craig really wants to move that boat, doesn't he? I guess I'm going to do so-and-so, i.e. anything but move a boat. Round and round we go. And it gets to the stage where actually I can lose the action entirely. And not just that action, the actions that were dependent on that action. Now, that's just my perspective. You've got to look at it from Jake's perspective and Mark's perspective. Everybody's messing with everybody else's plans with majorities that block the key thing they're looking to do. It's brutal. I, this is the first game I kickstarted, and I don't know if I've ever played a game that was meaner than this. Like, and this is speaking of everything, and even dumping the trainless national on my friend Eric clearly was not as evil as playing this game. Just like you're forced into being like an evil person. I don't know what it is about this island, but it must be cursed or something, because man, that is just brutal. There's evil. <laughs> it's so Jake, mean. Jake, I've never even seen you with this game. Do you even I still own it? I away because it was too mean. <laughs> we played it at PopCon maybe four years ago, maybe even longer than that. I think it was actually before I knew you. It sounds longer. like it, yeah. And we played it, and I mean, we literally were just cursing at each other all the time. It was totally the wrong time to pick it up, and I didn't know the rules. I was a wee board gamer who didn't learn all these poor lessons quickly. And it was just, oh, my God. It, like, literally, we were shouting at each other, cursing at each other. And every action you take is exactly as Craig said, filtered to the action of I'm going to hurt every single person in this action. There's never like, a, well, this is the best thing to do for me. You know, it's just like, I guess I can be a dick to Craig. Time to be a dick to Craig. The whole thing with the discs, right? Because you could just stack. You've only got a limited count of discs. You could stack them on two actions and try and guarantee that you'll get to do those actions. But then the people that have like spread it about being gone, oh, do you know what? Actually, if I get the sequencing right, I'll try and get three actions. And then Mark tries to get real clever and tries to take four actions. And then actually, he gets no actions. Right. It's just sublime. I mean, from a design point of view, I think it is a really good game. The issue it's got, Jake, and you know, part of the reason you probably bounced off it, it doesn't play how it looks. No. Right. You think it's like, oh, it's a pointy worker placement set collection-y kind of game. You know, and it's, oh, it's not. It is not that at all. It's just <laughs> evil. And my number one and number two picks, so I say, you know, what I would say are my, in terms of the top of the shelf for this list, I have to be in the mood for either one of those. Like, right. you know, I can't, if someone says to me, Tammany Hall, I have to sit down and think, am I in the mood for this? And with Vanuatu, it's that times three. With Tammany Hall, it's part of the genre. It's area control. You know, I, I get the thing. You don't get the thing. It's intrinsic in the design. With this, it's nasty and it's baked into something that otherwise you wouldn't expect to be nasty. Right. And you don't realize like so many Euro designers have moved away from a you don't get a turn. And that's like half this game Yeah, is making it so your friends don't get turns because they risked it. And instead of going for two actions, they went for three. And what that actually means is they get one now instead of two. But that, but think about this, Jake, right? Just just think about this a sec, because you're a bus fan, right? I do. Yeah, you like bus, uh, but you come to bus later, right? You come to bus like last year with the recent printing. You like bus. Yep. Right? Bus has that kind of design where I get my thing, you get no passengers, ha, ha, ha. Mm. So maybe if you revisited this somehow, you might find yourself liking it again, I think. I don't know. This was completely a purge based on the people I was playing with at the time, knowing that they wouldn't like it. This is no reflection on the game being bad or anything. I actually think I would. I think you're right, but I, I don't know who would play this with. I, I, I'm dying laughing now, knowing who you were playing with back at that time. Yeah, this is the worst possible game for them. It was my it was my high school and college friends. So oh, even okay. worse. Even worse. It was awful. <laughs> 
I thought you were talking about the crew of people that are making role player into a cooperative game. Oh, no, 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 no. Thankfully, no. Well, I'll offer one tip before I close it out. This had a recent Quinid print in, but it did have previously a printing from Hutch. And it's language independent. So if you can pick up a German copy or a French copy, it's perfectly workable as long as you buy some rules. Say buy, print some rules. And I suspect the uh, foreign language ones are available cheaper. So like, hey, if you want to give something really nasty a try, then I recommend Vanuatu. Yeah, flip people's perception of what a Euro game is on their head to the nth degree. Fun. I've never seen this one and I'd give it a whirl. I like nasty games. (laughs) My number three is a game that I don't know that comes off as being quite so nasty. But once you get to a higher level at it and understand how it actually flows through there, it becomes truly nasty indeed. It's the game of Twa by Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges and Alain Orban, published by Pearl Games. This comes off as being just dry Euro move this, you know, take this dice, get this stuff and so forth. But that, my friends, is where the weapon comes in, because the dice that you can use to do stuff aren't just your dice. It's other people's dice that you can buy out from underneath them without any say so on their part. So they've gone through the effort of accumulating enough workers out there to get a bunch of dice and they get some nice high dice compared to your really low rolling dice. And well, I'll just buy your really good dice instead. And you guys can pay me to use my crappy dice. That's part of the fun, as well as it is shoving people around out of the locations that get you more dice. And if you've correctly shoved people out of the right places and bought the dice out from underneath them, it becomes a pretty elbowy, pointy game. And uh, I'm currently involved in an online play right now that is definitely online pointy on uh, Board Game Arena. And ah, I like this game an awful lot. Whether you agree with the hidden scoring things at the end or not, the core mechanism, it is delightful and very interactive. Yeah, my wife hates this game. (laughs) (laughs) Is it too interactive or just what? It's the whole, I rolled those dice, they're mine. Like. (laughs) I did the work. I picked them up and shook them. Exactly. exactly. That whole concept of giving the dice away just infuriates her. And don't get me wrong, she plays it well enough, but there's that kind of emotional response of, no, 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 I want my five. You're like, well, well, you're not getting your five. I mean, I think I really like the game, Mark. I mean, it would have been on my list, I think, if I could play it more. Yeah, and I think you do have to go into it with the mindset that realistically they're, they're all group dice. It's just that who gets paid for the use of them. Hmm. I wanted to introduce the ladies expansion because that gives the players a private dice um, if memory serves. And I wondered if that might help uh, make it go down more easily in the game group. Like, you know, you've got one dice you can plan around. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty that that's a pretty good statement uh, as far as its pointiness. If <laughs> if the if the mitigation is the fact that, well, you, you have one dice you can use. It's a solid game. Like, I mean, is it is it still available? It is, yeah. It actually got reprinted a couple of years ago, and I believe that it is still available. I, I think you could probably find used copies because I know it was out of print for a very long time. You probably have a harder time finding the expansion. I, I do have the Ladies of Trois and have never played it, so I couldn't tell you. Have you played Black Angel, and can you compare and contrast? Because I guess the Black Angel is yes, based on this, yes. isn't it? <laughs> I would say that Black Angel should have been my favorite game of the year last year. It should have been amazing. It's a game that I love with a theme that I love even more with even better production. It should have been a home run. And in so many ways, it was more and less. It was more stuff and more rules and just less interesting gameplay. 
I played it three times while I owned it. It fell hard every single time I played it. Uh, I didn't even enjoy it by the end of the third time. I'm like, oh, I would just really rather play Twi every single time. So I managed to pick up an early copy at Gen Con last year. So when I decided to get rid of it, it was still relatively hard to get. So I got every dime back out of it that I put into it. But uh, And I really haven't missed it since then because I realized nobody was ever going to play this with me. So... Mm. <laughs> At that point, it's time to get your money back out. With such gaming hipsters, man, you, you, we prefer the organic beige version to the I know. science yeah. fiction, rules-laden, extra stuff version. Man, I wanted to like Black Angel more than just about any other game I've had recently. And it really, it's not as good of a game, in my opinion. And it's it's more but less. I don't miss it. If they did come out with an expansion that somehow fixed it and made it great, uh, you know, in, in kind of the way that uh, Viticulture Tuscany did, Certainly, I would reconsider it because, like I said, I, I really want to like that game, but I, I realized there was no chance I would ever play pick that over Twa to play. That's a stiff ask, uh, an expansion that takes stuff out, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just, it was so much fiddlier without adding anything interesting to the game. I don't know. Like, I f- it felt less strategic. It felt less interactive. There was more stuff to do. This time of year was so stressful for me because I'd read stuff that said exactly what you said. And I also came from a place of not super being in love with Twa anyways. And so for this like month that you had the game and were bringing it, it was like this strange social deduction game of figuring out how to avoid playing it with you, but not being worried about it. It was so hard because <laughs> it was so strange because I remember you playing it and the first time it was like, oh God, this has confirmed everything. And then I had to avoid it from every point on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. So, but... Hey, I realized that pretty quickly myself, so you lucked out. There it is. Well, thanks for humoring me there. I appreciate you uh, educating me. I still kind of scratch my head when I hear on Heavy Cardboard and also Rado talking about, oh, Black Angel's the game for me, and kind of sit back and go, hmm, well, it's nice that you think that. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, we've got more more recent example of that with Ed and C, right? So, you know, everybody can be wrong. Everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrong all the time. I don't think I've ever been right. (laughs) <laughs> that is my third pick on the topic. We have a couple quick honorable mentions that I think we'll just list out and we'll do these rapid fire-ish. And uh, well, then we'll wrap her up. What's already a very long episode. So okay. uh, Craig, sure. got an honorable mention for us? Sure. I didn't put it in the list because I felt like it was too close to that kind of card play thing. But it, this is multiple players. Um, it's Red 7 with the advanced rules, making it particularly nasty. Every round you have to play a card, which makes you the winner and by making you the winner you're throwing everybody else into deep water it's designed by Carl Chudik and Chris Sislik under Asmodee Games and it's it's uh, it's filler it's semi-smart filler yeah it's good fun and it's it, you're always hurting, hurting everybody else but I think I disqualified from the main list for the reasons you gave in the intro mock I actually love Red 7 quite a bit so great choice I put a Carl Chuddick game on the list as well. In fact, not after thinking about this, I think you could put all Carl Chuddick's game on this list, actually, because, you know, Glory to Rome fits in this pile and they all do. So I put innovation. Innovation is mean as hell because <laughs> you can literally blow up somebody's entire world, steal all their points and leave them with nothing while you're cackling away and locking them out from being able to do anything. That's the fun of the game. Yep, agreed. Innovation's fun. Innovation's just unhinged. Sometimes the cards will come out in such a way that someone's got an unbeatable combo, or what seemingly unbeatable combo early on. But the beauty of it is it's just re-rack go again. It's a great game. Yep, and uh, the more people you have, the more chaos ensues. 
Next one on my list, uh, Stick Elm. Hey, any game called Stick Em, where you're purposely trying to screw people with cards that score them points, that is super interactive. And final one I want to mention is maybe the best, least favorite game on my entire list is Tigris and Euphrates. I hate the game, but I recognize what an amazing achievement it is. And uh, one of the reasons I don't play it anymore is because of all the negative interactions in it. Oh, that game can hurt. I'm afraid, guys, you've just heard the last guest appearance from me on this episode. <laughs> I will broker no criticism of the good Dr. Rena Knizia. So, Well, I will concede. I think it is a masterpiece, but I don't ever want to play it again. Fair play. All right. This is certainly a long podcast, but it's always great to have Craig on for a long time. It is. We always get chatty every time we have Craig on board. I apologize. I need to be tighter next time. I really, really do. We want you actually to just talk longer and actually ratio us down to like just asking you questions. This should really just be an interview. The Craig Show. The Craig (laughs) Show featuring the gaming moguls. Cringe, cringe, cringe. (laughs) Craig, thank you so much for joining us again tonight. And by the way, everybody, if you haven't, please check out his podcast, The Train Rush. If you have any interest in train games whatsoever, because they leave absolutely no stone or railroad tie unturned in their analysis of these games. You're too kind. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate the uh, the, the plug. And if you ever decide to start talking about non-train games, not non-strict train games, I'm uh, absolutely a listener as well. Thank you very much. I shall make a point of tagging you if I do. Jake, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Oh my gosh, what do I got to do? We're coming up on fall, and you know what that means. Football. No. It does, though. But, but it what means, you... It means pub meeple, Jake. Oh, pub meeple. Oh gosh, we got to do the freaking tops. It's that time of the year. I so few games. It's going to be so weird to compare them. Yeah, but the beauty is you've got perspective. You've got some distance between them, so. Well, what's interesting is I bet you this will be the least cult of the, what we're playing recently top 20. This will be yeah. the most like, ideal top 20. Oh, for sure. So... Uh, every fall, Craig, we go through and we do the Pub Meeple Top 100 Games thing, you know, to figure out our top games and do an episode on it. And I'm dying to see how we changed since last year, because I agree. I think the cult of the new factor is as low as it's ever going to be. Agreed. Well, this is why you guys should all carry on listening to the gaming moguls, because I've tried to do that Pub Meeple thing, and it is a heck of a lot of work. Too much, to be honest, but that's fine. It's fun. Anyway, for the gaming moguls, I'm Mark. I'm Jake. And I was Craig. And remain Craig. (laughs) Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.